2700 BC, King Enme Baragesi of Kish, a Sumerian city-state, led an army 160 miles across the desert to invade the neighboring civilization of Elam. His army numbered in the thousands. Made up of men conscripted from the various city-states of Sumer, spread throughout the Fertile Crescent, what we now call Mesopotamia. His men were organized by weapon type in large homogeneous units. Spearmen were with spearmen, bowmen with bowmen. He even had units wielding a relatively new kind of weapon. Swordsmen carrying sickle swords made of bronze. This was the beginning of the era of war fighting, known as Solid State War. Here's Lieutenant Colonel Grossman with a brief description. Think of the individual soldier as a molecule. You know, once about a time, we were two blocks slamming against each other. And then the individual molecule gets up to a liquid, right? So now, instead of being a solid phase, we're liquid phase. And that's, that's a maneuver warfare and, and, and World War I type cutting around around the enemy. And now, the energy in the individual molecule, the one person, can call in airstrikes, call in precision artillery. They've got enormous energy that they can direct. And we're able to fight the battle with far less troops. And they're calling in airstrikes and they're calling in artillery and they're maneuvering. And we feel what I call the gaseous phase, where we now have enough energy that the individual molecule is actually a gas. And we got three-dimensional battle. So we go from two-dimensional planes, solid warfare, slamming each other, We go to fluid warfare, the next phase, and then we go to the gaseous phase. In a pure solid-state war, these force-on-force encounters basically came down to who had more muscle. The Sumerian army basically mowed down the Elamite opposition due to their superior numbers and superior weapons technology. They had more men, and they had more bronze. King Enmebar Gesi would be recorded in the Sumerian king list as the one who made Elam submit. His 160-mile campaign was over six times the distance of any previous invasion. He expanded his territory to such an unprecedented size that centuries later, other conquerors in the region would claim the title of King of Kish as synonymous with King of the Universe, or King of the Known World. But just by starting the 160-mile journey, King Enmin Bargesi was already making history, for he had just started the First War. In the Stone Age, there was no such thing as war. Sure, people had been fighting for other various reasons as we covered in the last episode, especially in the Mesopotamia region, the so-called cradle of civilization. Early civilizations had been battling for as long as they had existed, going back to the Chalcolithic or Copper era, considered the end of the Stone Age. But these early battles never occurred at a logistical distance greater than 25 miles, and conflicts were typically resolved over weeks, if not days. But a war is different. Prior to this campaign, there had been no war because there was no entity capable of war. A single man can start a fight. A group of men can start a brawl or a skirmish or even a battle. But it takes a different kind of entity to make war. A war is an ongoing conflict, usually declared, involving multiple offensives and battles. For an entity to engage in war, it needs three key factors. First, it needs a lot of men. And these men need to be willing to fight together and therefore be able to identify with each other, even if they don't know each other personally. King Enmebar Gesi conscripted thousands from various city-states of Sumer, and these men couldn't possibly have known each other. But they were able to unite because they believed in what historian Benedict Anderson calls 
an imagined community, a group of people who perceive themselves to be connected despite not knowing each other directly. They believed in their group identity as Sumerians, and that enabled them to fight and kill those who were not in their group identity, the Elamites. Secondly, in order to make war, an entity needs an economic power, also known as wealth, to fuel it. King Enmebar Gacy was able to conduct his 160-mile campaign because he had already had access to wealth that other kings did not. Other kings surely wanted to conquer the known world, but they simply didn't have the capability to feed an army over such a distance. This economic ability to make war is also what led humans out of the Stone Age. The ages of proto-history are so named stone, bronze, and iron because these materials represented the limit of human ability. Bronze was a game-changer for those who had access to it. Unlike previous materials, bronze can be cast into hard weapons and armor. The sword was impossible before bronze. Knives of flint and obsidian had existed for centuries, but blades could only be made so long or else they'd shatter. King and Mebargesi's soldiers armed with bronze sickle swords, bronze sip spears, and bronze armor likely seemed invincible against Stone Age weapons. Now, Bronze artifacts have been dated as far back as 4600 BC, so that's two millennia before then, but they were extremely hard to come by at this point, because bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, and copper and tin are mined in very different parts of the world, at least from the perspective of the time. So in order to acquire enough copper and enough tin to mass-produce bronze, a civilization needed a backbone of economic growth and a permanent location to allow for mass trade. Which brings us to a third factor which is administration and control. In order to organize thousands of men, to gather the wealth to feed and arm them, to ensure they did what you wanted, there had to be an intricate system of keeping track of everyone. And the system would have to be centralized. There would have to be some sort of top-down control where leaders were able to get the followers to do as told. And you'd also need some way of keeping people in one place, which was not the norm. And has not been the norm for most of human history. Because for most of human history, even agrarian people didn't typically stay in permanent locations all year round. The style of agriculture pre-Bronze Age was very low maintenance. Many peoples would plant crops, travel around as weather hunting incentivized them, and then return in a later season to harvest. Neolithic agriculture was very hands-off. It was not like the way we think of agriculture nowadays. So in order to make war, an entity needed one, a strong group identity, two, economic power, and three, centralization. In other words, it had to become a state. Men start fights, groups start brawls, but only states make war. Nowadays, we take statehood for granted. When we're traveling, we refer to locations by their political identity. And there's hardly a square inch of land on earth that's not claimed by some nation state. So it's easy to forget that states and all political units are abstractions. They're ideas. They can label a physical land or a concrete people, but they are not the land or the people themselves. Now, this is easy to forget for us nowadays, but this was not lost on the people of the Bronze Age, as statehood was a relatively new concept and it was not at all ubiquitous. As King and Mebar Gacy waged history's first war, most of the world's population was not under the jurisdiction of any state. And actually, most of what we know about ancient history is greatly skewed because all of our records come from states and static civilizations, even though they represented a very small minority of people. 
Most people, for most of history, lived in a style of small group autonomy that modern political scientists would call anarchy, but a more accurate term would be self-governance. Living with a small group that you knew well without any outside interference was the norm, and it was much more aligned in nature and much more in line with the instincts of the male psyche. So even though one of the main arguments of this podcast series is that war is what shaped masculine culture, paradoxically, in order for wars to be made, states had to form. In order for states to form, they first had to subdue certain male instincts. In this episode, we will explore the idea of statecraft and its effect on humanity and male psychology. We're going to look at three Bronze Age civilizations, the Sumerian, the Akkadian, and the Egyptian Empire, along with a couple more recent examples. We'll also take a look at a critical divergence in male psychology that built off the natural dominance hierarchy, how in order to create kings, you also had to create peasants. And my humble request is if you enjoy the show, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate it on Apple or Spotify, and of course, share it with anyone who think you would enjoy the show. It's my first history podcast. It's a very time-consuming project, so I appreciate any support. Hope you enjoy this episode. History of Man, Episode 2. Chiefs to Kings. Solid State War in the Bronze Age. The History of Man podcast is made possible by Kudra. Kudra is a caffeine-free herbal tea that is an adaptogen, meaning it strengthens your body's response to stress, a nootropic, meaning it improves cognitive function, and a superfood, meaning it has been clinically proven to contribute to longevity. It's also great to drink after your morning coffee as it helps regulate cortisol levels. You can check that out at drinkkudra.com. That's drink, K-U-D-R-A.com. We're also brought to you by the Masculine Archetype Challenge a program for heightening the testosterone-driven instincts of your psyche that we call the masculine archetype. Through a lens of Jungian psychology, it takes you through 21 daily lessons to practically internalize many of the virtues discussed here on the History of Man podcast. That's available at MasculineArchetypeChallenge.com. Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast directly and get access to ad-free versions of our episodes, you can do so through our Substack. Just subscribe at HistoryOfMan.Substack.com. Let's return to where we left off last episode. Let's imagine that you are a chief of a small, agrarian, late Neolithic tribe. And your people are basically your extended family and close friends. Actually, they're your only friends. These are the only people you know. This is your tribe. Your tribe is an extension of the family. And you, of course, are a benevolent chief who really cares about his people, as I'm sure you would be. And this isn't for abstract moral reasons, as... Much simply, it's just practical for you to be a good chief. I mean, one, your tribe is made up of your extended family and closest friends, people you know well, but you're also bonded by what Yuval Noah Harari and Sapiens refers to as gossip theory, the human ability to keep track of many people's reputations and small intimate groups. Basically, everyone in the group has a, a file on everyone else. Everyone's keeping track of each other's behavior. Everyone is aware of everyone else's reputation and has a good sense of their reputation with everyone else. This is important because by basically keeping track of everyone, you know whether or not you can trust people. And that's how real trust was formed. And this group, with trust, with collective action, together they grant, they've granted you this higher status of chief, of essentially alpha male, um, because they trust that your leadership will benefit them. You probably earned this position through your strength, bravery, honor, 
most likely when it came to threats towards the tribe, whether it was in battle or your ingenuity and leadership, somehow you earned this position through merit. And because of that, the tribe is happy to grant you some extra perks and privileges, but only because you're so valuable to them. As we discussed in the prologue, all evidence points to human beings being a monogamous pair bonding species, with the one exception that the alpha male or chief of a given group usually is the only person who has multiple wives, mainly because of his ability to overcome the polygyny threshold, which is essentially he can provide so much surplus value to a female who mates with him that it's, it's worth it to share him, essentially. And most cultures developed around allowing this uh, or some sort of cultural norm around this. But even still, there is a natural check on your status and your privileges, because in the small personal group, if you were to misuse your power, if you were to not do a good job leading, you'd be removed. Essentially, if, you're, uh, if the cost to the tribe of you being having this higher status was greater than your benefits, they would remove you. Because even if you are the strongest, baddest male in the, in the area, you're no match to everyone else teaming up on you. So essentially, just because of the situation, your individual selfish incentives are almost perfectly aligned with the group incentives. If they do well, you do well. So in a sense, your tribe acts as a superorganism. Many individual organisms working synergistically to maximize their survival and replication in a challenging environment. And just like any individual biological organism, your tribal superorganism has internal functions and external functions that must be maintained and must be balanced in order to exist. The internal functions are those that sustain life. Like the digestive and circulatory systems of the body, your tribe sustains itself through production of energy, food, in the form of domesticated animals, crops, whatever, but also creation of crafts that make life easier and more pleasant, and fertile women who have the absolutely most important internal role of any survival group, which is creating more people. These life-sustaining values we can call wealth. And there are various not-so-peaceful tribes in your area who have an incentive to take away said wealth, which calls for the external functions. The external functions of your tribe are how it interfaces with the world, its perimeter. Just like the membrane around an amoeba or the muscles, teeth, and claws of an animal, this is what allows the tribe to, one, consume external wealth through hunting, trade, or conquest, and two, remain safe from predators, either through evasion or combat. Basically, it's to allow what should come in in and keep what should stay away out. Now, establishing the perimeter is the primary social function of masculinity, instinctive masculinity, testosterone-driven traits, which of course falls on the shoulders, primarily at least, on the men of the tribe. So if, you know, just as a visual of you know, this, uh, this analogy we're using, you can imagine a circle, right? a circle being a social group. There's an inside of the circle, and then there's also a perimeter. There's a, you know, a diameter of the circle. And instead of just a solid line, we can imagine it as a dashed line making the circle. I actually, I made, I made uh, uh, an image of this. It's on the substack if you want to take a look at it, where each dash on the line represents the responsibility of each individual man. So in a given tribe, every man contributes to the perimeter. Otherwise, he probably you know, would have been kicked out of the tribe if he was dead weight. But not every dash is the same length, right? So like a, a young, you know, say a 15-year-old 
boy who's becoming a man, contributing to the external, contributing to the perimeter of the group, might have a small dash on this perimeter. You know, he's contributing, but he has his place, but it's a very small responsibility. Higher status males who are more competent, who are stronger, who are wiser, have longer dashes. You, the chief, the alpha male of the group, have the biggest dash, right? Whether it's you know, you make up half of the circle or a third, it doesn't really matter, but you have the greatest responsibility because you are the acting head of the superorganism. Mainly, you make the big decisions when it comes to group actions, the movement of the tribe for the sake of acquiring food and security. Um, if there's a battle, you're the one who directs people. If there's some sort of uh, survival need, you're the one who makes the decision for the group. You're the head. So the members of the tribe, have been willing to defer some of their decision-making power, their autonomy, essentially. They, they've been willing to defer it to you because they've trusted that you can lead them better than they can lead themselves, right? They've done this through observing your actions for however long you've been around them. And the other men of the tribe themselves are willing to defer some of what we might call their masculinity to you, or essentially defer some of the masculine social function to you. In a biological family, meaning an adult male and adult female who have pair bonded and now have shared offspring, it is the male or father that more largely fills the external functions of protecting and provisioning simply because it's the female who is in charge essentially of the internal functions. She's the one who gets pregnant. She's the one who creates life inside of her body. So if the tribe is an extension of the family, then you as a chief are basically an extension of the father, right? The, in terms of social roles, you're the father of all the fathers. Or put differently, you're the tribal authority figure that the familial authority figures defer to, right? You can think of it in concentric circles, if you will. Or to use the, the biological analogy again, the chief is the brain of the tribal organism. He's the one that decides the collective action. And since, you know, since I'm using this biological analogy, it's, uh, it's interesting to note that the only creatures in nature that require a central nervous system are those that physically move through space, right? Obviously, plants, you know, they have some, they have sensory uh, apparatus, obviously, but plants don't have brains. Actually, any, any, any creature that doesn't move doesn't need a brain. And for an interesting illustration of this, there's um, a sea creature called a tunicate, which is a type of sea squirt, that when it's born, it has something resembling a brain, a uh, Technically, it's a cerebral ganglion, which is a central nervous system. And it, it has it when it's born, and it spends its first phase of life floating through the ocean with its brain-like thing to just determine where it should settle in the ocean, right? Because then it settles in the ocean, it, set, maybe it finds a good rock to plant its roots into, and then it essentially eats its own brain. It, it allows that um, nervous system to atrophy consumes it because it takes so much energy to have a brain, right? It only has the brain for that sh short period of its life where it's moving through the ocean. Once it plants itself into a rock and then spends the rest of its life there, it no longer needs a brain. It's, it's good to flush out the analogy to understand that only things that move need central nervous systems. Now, as a tribe, you're often, often on the move, right? You have to evade threats. You're following game that you hunt seeking better weather conditions, perhaps on a, a cyclical basis. And even though this is, you know, we're in the late Stone Age, your tribe practices agriculture, it doesn't mean that you have to be in the same place all the time. Most groups like yours practice what's known as swidening, or temporary slash and burn agriculture in a shifting manner. Um, it allows for diversity of crops, which is a, 
better for soil health. Um, but also, most crops that you cultivate were quite low maintenance. And you know, you could plant them, leave them, and then come back the following season to harvest them, or, or, or even the following year. There are plenty of plants that can you know, be planted and left alone for years, and you can just come back and eat them when you wanted to, right? It's a very low-maintenance uh, agriculture. And since your group was small and land was super plentiful, it was very easy to just move around and, you know, just go to wherever you felt like, essentially, or wherever um, would be best for your survival. Now, as chief, you don't take your role lightly, right? Because the world is a dangerous place and you have a very important job. There are man-eating predators everywhere, sometimes harsh weather conditions. But the biggest danger are the other humans who might want to take your wealth. So far, you've been able to evade or fight off marauders. In fact, of course, what, it, what earns you the role of chief is your ability to lead the group in dangerous situations. But you realize that your enemies have been getting stronger. They've been improving their weapons. They've been growing in numbers. And you, you're a smart, forward-thinking man, and you know that one day, they will get ahead of you if you don't do the same. You even heard a rumor that some of the marauder groups have been conquering each other and consolidating, so very soon they're going to have, for sure, numerical superiority over your peaceful tribe. So, you attempt to do the same. This is the simple Red Queen theory of evolution that we've mentioned in previous episodes. Only by constantly evolving can you keep up with competing forces. Thankfully, there's also friendly tribes in the area. Maybe there's a few that you've had some amicable trade relations with in the past. And you, come, you go to their chief, and their chief has had the same exact concern as yours, right? You're both peaceful tribes. There's a lot of unfriendly tribes in the area. The, the hostile groups are becoming bigger. So you, you make the obvious, uh, the obvious next move, which is to form an alliance. You agree to the mutually beneficial relationship to come to each other's aid when attacked, which means you have now double the defenses, ideally. Forming alliances and sometimes creating tribal confederations has been a very common practice amongst nomadic groups in every era and every culture where nomadic groups existed, right? Like if you look at the American Indian nations for a more recent version you know, from maybe 200 years ago and before, obviously, um, in Southeast Asia, there are groups of peoples known as hill peoples or sometimes referred to as hill tribes that are groups of people that have successfully not been absorbed into a state, even up, to, up until modern day. Uh, some of the, the conflict in Myanmar, um, of the, uh, the Myanmar government against, uh, well, some of these ethnic groups are, are because of the fact that they've continued to evade being absorbed by a government. Um, you know, they've formed uh, confederations while remaining autonomy. And even if you look at Afghanistan, there's still basically a tribal culture there where tribes will form alliances and confederations, but basically still remaining discrete tribes. Because in such an alliance, both parties maintain their autonomy. It's a, it's a decentralized way of organizing. They're discrete units with a transactional relationship between each other. So this is a good arrangement you have with your ally tribe. But the problem is, there's no way to be sure they actually would come to your aid. Because even if it's mutually beneficial to help each other in the long run, in the short run, the, the selfish and collective incentives still aren't quite aligned. Each individual tribe has an immediate incentive to save themselves if the other tribe is attacked. Because while, yes, there might be the meme of honor to uphold, you know that if your allies are about to get wiped out, then there's no audience for whom your honorable reputation would matter. And actually, in that case, it would be just be better to save your own people. 
So the next logical step would be to more greatly align the incentives of the two allied groups. That way, neither party would be subject to a moral dilemma. The most common way through history was through intermarriage. Your children and the allied chief's children intermarry, so then you would have shared grandchildren. This way, if either tribe's attacked, each chief now has a selfish genetic reason to help as some of his grandchildren would be in danger. That way, there's no longer a moral dilemma. And now, if you do this, you actually have more aligned genetic incentives with the ruling family of the other tribe than you do with your own tribe. In a sense, you have more in common with an outsider than your own people. And just remember this because we're going to revisit this idea a little bit later. So now you have a little bit better situation. You've intermarried, you know, you have this allied group, uh, you share your grandchildren. So you can trust them, but even if you can trust them, there's now still a logistical problem because your allies are just like you. They're often on the move, following games, seeking new temporary swindling fields, or moving as they desire. And communication at this time is only as fast as a man can run. So you can't count on getting the message to them any faster than you can be attacked. And coordination in general would be a major issue. Even if the numbers were even, the invading army would always have an advantage of being able to plan out their attack. So for the sake of security, some sort of centralized command really would benefit everyone. If you and the other tribe consolidated, you can create a single coordinated perimeter. So you run this idea by the other chief. And let's assume the best, and let's say that not only is the chief totally willing, we could even go further and say, he looks up to you, he, he thinks it's a great idea, and he's willing to defer his chief status and give the leadership role entirely to you. So like the Brady Bunch, his tribe comes over to live with yours. Now you're the head of a much bigger superorganism. Your group's internal functions produce a lot more wealth. And that's okay, it's great, because you also have a stronger perimeter. If there's a threat, you can now muster twice as many warriors before, and you're all together so you can organize them in a coordinated fashion. But now you have another problem, because there was a reason why your, your tribe didn't organically grow beyond 150 people before, because gossip theory doesn't work at this scale. I mean, 150, as we discussed in the last episode, is known as Dunbar's number. It is the limits of the human social brain, our limbic system's ability to uh, keep track of intimate relationships. So now you have more people than any person the tribe can keep track of using just our social brain. And this becomes especially challenging when it comes to defending the tribe. Because remember, from last episode, 98% of people have an extreme aversion to taking lethal action against another human. Now, one of the factors that allows one to overcome this resistance is social affinity. It's the desire to protect people you love, love being an emotional proxy for people who share your genes. But now, when you muster your warriors to repel an invading force, you can't rely on social affinity alone to motivate them, right? Because many of these men will barely know each other. At least, uh, you know, your warriors will only know about half of the force, right? So how can you get all of them to fight kill, and risk death for the sake of each other. You can't rely on the social brain. You can't rely on gossip theory. You would have to look for a new form. You would have to create a new entity, one that can replace the family or kinship group in their emotional circuitry. You would have to create an imagined community, a group of people that perceive that they're connected despite not actually knowing each other. And the first step to creating an imagined community is to label them with a group identity. 
King Enmebar Gacy's invading army numbered in the thousands, conscripting men from the various Sumerian city-states. The standard practice of the time was to conscript one out of every hundred men from each village or district. So the typical Sumerian foot soldier didn't know most of his fellow soldiers and hadn't met them before this campaign. Because they're not professional soldiers, they were conscripted. They were laborers of some sort, farmers, craftsmen, something. So they didn't know the men they were fighting with, but they were united as Sumerians. The city-states of Sumer were largely themselves autonomous, mainly due to the ineffectiveness of foreign rule. Right. So even though King Enmebar Gesi was the the ruling king of the the various Sumerian city-states, we could say all of Sumer. All of Sumer wasn't really united itself as a as a, a country or a nation state the way we would think. It was basically a coalition of fairly autonomous city-states that were now following this one city-state, Kish, because their king was seen as the king of kings, essentially. However, they were bonded by a common language and culture. They all spoke Sumerian, and they all had roots in, uh, you know, at, at one point back in history, if you go deeper into the Stone Age, they probably did have uh, some sort of tribal roots together. A group identity is an abstraction, like Sumerian, like American, like Republican, Democrat. These are all abstractions. An abstraction is a symbolic representation of a more complex set of actualities. Abstracting allows one to simplify huge amounts of data and to focus on what's relevant. And this allows us to perceive things beyond our direct observation. For example, last episode, we started our timeline with a cave painting from 30,000 years ago, representing a prehistoric skirmish that was drawn with stick fingers. The painter, who we don't know who it is, but he most certainly or she had a, uh, had a more detailed image in his or her head, either from memory or imagination, right? It was very unlikely that the painter was painting in real time. Now, after the painting was made, other humans from minutes after the painting was made, 30, 000, all the way to 30,000 years into present day, have been able to look at these stick figure drawings and understand what the stick figure symbols represented, which was some guys fighting with bows and spears. That is a uniquely human ability. Alfred Korzybski, the founder of the field of general semantics, called this the time-binding function. Unlike other animals that are only space binders, meaning they can only perceive the relative locations of objects in space, humans can perceive and measure objects in time. This allows us to build off of knowledge of past generations. It also allows us to plan for the future. And actually, kind of what we're doing in this podcast, looking at history, is also um, the result of time binding. Right? We're working off of past information from people who are, have been long, long been dead. Time binding is a function made possible by our abstracting ability. So your own past and future only exist as images in your head to represent either something you previously experienced or may later experience in actuality. And it's important to understand that abstractions are labels to represent things. They are not the things themselves. As Korzybski famously said, the map is not the territory. And while all of us know this cognitively, it's very easy to forget this since so much of our knowledge is based on abstractions. And as we'll see through history, otherwise intelligent men have been confused, manipulated, and sometimes subjugated because they've mixed up the map and the territory. And this is especially true in how people identify groups. When you apply a label to a group of people, you're highlighting the similar details about them and ignoring the unique ones. Everyone has times they like to talk to people and times when they don't. 
For example, if someone says, I am an extrovert, they're highlighting that they usually like to talk to people and putting themselves in a category of like people while ignoring and discounting all the times that they don't feel like talking to people. When someone says, Joe is a lawyer, they're highlighting his profession, ignoring all of his other characteristics. When someone says, Cindy is a conservative, they're highlighting her general political leaning, but not actually identifying any of her views on specific points. Abstracting people into categories is very useful when it comes to making quick reads on people so that you can make educated guesses on what they'll do in the future. For example, with honor, as we discussed extensively last episode, honor is a very useful abstraction. If you see a man retaliate when he is wronged, then you know not to take his stuff. But since you're ignoring unique details for categorical ones, you're going to have some inaccuracies. For example, racialism is poor abstraction, right? Racism being a, a subcategory of racialism. But racialism is essentially when you treat someone or you, you make assumptions about someone based on their race, right? Which could be negative, it could be hateful, like in racism. But a lot of racialism that most of us do all the time is not necessarily racism, but it is poor abstraction, right? For example, if you assume an Asian person is good at math just because he's Asian, well, that may or may not be true. It's not a racist assumption, but there's a very good chance it's a wrong assumption because, of course, many Asians are not good at math, right? Like, uh, just, you know, even if you use statistics of more often than not, they're good at math, you're leaving yourself open to a poor assumption about reality, right? Based on this uh, very general abstraction. If you assume a certain politician, let's say someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who's a Democrat, you just assume because she's under that party uh, abstraction banner, she, she leans left on every single issue just because she's part of that abstract group. That can also be poor abstraction, right? Because there are some issues where she leans conservative, right? So if you just assume, if you vote based on that, you're actually uh, poorly abstracting. Furthermore, there are infinite ways to abstract things while remaining accurate still. How you abstract something determines its utility to you. For example, an avid meat eater and a PETA activist can both abstract a cow in totally different ways. Right to the PETA activist, it's uh, a cow is a, a member of a protected group. To an avid meat eater, a cow is a future hamburger. Right, those are both accurate abstractions, but they're very different based on who the person is. Both people are abstracting the cow in a way that's relevant to them, while ignoring all of the other traits of the cow that are irrelevant to them. This is important because how we abstract group identities determines the us versus them paradigm, which defines how violence is done. So for a political example, um, we can look at the Zionist movement in the middle part of the 20th century. Um, looking back at it now from our modern knowledge of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's very easy to abstract the groups as Jews and Arabs or Israelis and Palestinians, right? That's, that's just how, um, that's how the, the line has been drawn over the last uh, 70 years, let's say. And we take it for granted. But actually, and um, Daryl Cooper uh, goes through this in his... Uh, his great series on the Modern Made podcast, Fear and Loathing uh, in New Jerusalem. Uh, he, sp he spoke about how in the early parts of the Zionist movement, not all Zionists agreed to this uh, line being drawn, this, this certain way of categorizing people, because there were a lot of members in the Zionist movement who had just come from Russia. They're Jews from Russia who had been a part of the communist revolution, and they didn't want to draw the line between Jews and Arabs. They actually wanted to unite the poor Jews and poor Arabs as a proletariat, to rise up against the rich Jews and the rich Arabs, the bourgeoisie. If they had won, it would be a very different situation, 
over there, right? If they had won, it, it would have been like another communist state against the capitalist nations, right? But of course, the the non-communist Zionists won, and therefore, if you're in the Middle East, if you're Im- amongst that conflict, you can't help but put people in these categories of Jews versus Arabs. The essence of us versus them is that group identities only make sense in contrast with a mutually exclusive group, right? You can do proletariat versus bourgeoisie because you can't be in both. Uh, But you can't do proletariat versus Arab, right? That just wouldn't make sense as an us versus them paradigm because there are some individuals who are both proletariat and Arab. There are some individuals who are neither, right? So that doesn't make sense as an us versus them paradigm. It ha- they have to be mutually exclusive groups because that's the only way to define conflict. Now, the us versus them instinct actually builds off of genetic delineations, right? Now, it's unpleasant to look at this through uh, a pro-social lens, but it does come from survival programming, right? It's an abstraction that evolved to quickly determine who do you favor in a conflict. Another thing that you know, Darrell Cooper mentioned in, the, in that series is a Bedouin proverb, me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, me and my brother and my cousin against the, the stronger or against the world, right? Which demonstrates some sort of hierarchy, a genetic-based hierarchy based on whose side are you on in a conflict, right? Me against my brother, okay, we're fighting. But if there's a, a fight between my brother and my cousin, well, I'm going to side with my brother, which makes sense genetically because I have more genes in common with my brother, right? It makes sense to to favor the person who's carrying more common genes with you. And this often just comes down to the instinctive question, do I have enough common genes with someone to risk my own well-being for that person? Right when it comes to children, uh, and this is, you know, this is all an extension of the social affinity effect that has inspired people to violence to overcome the resistance to killing. When it comes to protecting children, uh, that's usually a no-brainer. I mean, of course we have our our emotional based Instincts, but the reason why we have those emotional based instincts to protect our children, it just makes sense because one's child has exactly 50% genes in common with you. So it's definitely worth, uh, worth risking your life. Your siblings have an average of 50% genes in common with you because it kind of depends on how, uh, how uh, your mother's and father's genes ended up in each of you. So probably worth risking your life. When it comes to nieces, nephews, first cousins, you have an average of 25% genes in common, but your second cousins once removed have an average of only 1.5% genes in common. So maybe you wouldn't risk your life in that case. But unlike in genetics, the cultural us versus them is a function of the mind. During the creation of the first states in the, in the late Chalcolithic era and early Bronze Age, we see the us versus them instinct shift from protecting people who share your genes to protecting people who share your memes or cultural elements. Right? When the Sumerian soldiers invaded Elam, some of them might have been related. You know, They might have had some DNA in common if you went far back enough, but they really weren't related. This is an example of what's known in psychology as transference, where feelings that evolve for a certain life situation are repurposed in another life situation. You know, The instinct to protect your family is now transferred to protect people who just speak the same language as you or dress the same as you, have some of the cultural elements that are in common with you. And similar to uh, sublimation, which we mentioned last episode in terms of endemic warfare, uh, where um, 
you know, the, the violent instinct to go to war was sublimated into kind of a ritualized combat where maybe uh, lethality wasn't so common. This is kind of the opposite of that. Um, instead of expressing a violent primal instinct in a, in a less violent way, this uh, transference of family protection to cultural protection is kind of, you know, it's kind of the opposite of sublimation. We could call it superlimation because now uh, you're taking this violent primal instinct and applying it to larger situations. Us versus them has been a useful social mechanism because having two clear, mutually exclusive groups helps define your own group clearly. It solidifies the perimeter, at least cognitively. And the whole reason why you've created this larger perimeter around an impersonal tribe is for the defense against hostile forces. So with your new, growing, impersonal tribe, it, it makes sense to label a them first, right? I mean, that is the, the main reason why these two tribes have overcome their social instincts to be in small, intimate groups and combine it into one big group, right? If you make a clear them to fear, it helps define the us. This has been done by various groups throughout history, states, nation states, uh, religious groups, cults. One of the simplest ways to unite a group is to give them a common enemy to fear, ideally one that is evil and extremely different from you. One simple way of establishing a them is to label people as raw versus cooked. Right? This is something that uh, James Scott speaks about in his books. Uh, one that I'm drawing from a lot from this episode is The Art of Not Being Governed, where he speaks about the uh, the peoples in Southeast Asia that have been able to evade um, absorption into states, right? And this law, raw versus cooked uh, dichotomy is something that was promoted by states, uh, specifically like the Han Chinese, which was one of the bigger states in the area uh, during the early state formation in Southeast Asia, where there was the cooked people who were seen as the good people who were part of a state. They were refined, they were uh, developed, versus the raw or wild people who continued self-governance, who lived off the land, swiddening, and uh, not being absorbed into the uh, the culture of the state. The Romans did this with barbarians, right? Uh, the Roman Empire, basically anyone who wasn't part of the Roman Empire was labeled as barbarians. I mean, the term barbaric is a, a negative adjective uh, in, in English language all the way to today. But there's a lot of evidence to say that as far as um, showing empathy and humane behavior, the non-Romans were basically as humane as the Romans, maybe even more humane in some situations. They just had a different culture and they didn't get assimilated. But by having this label, by labeling them as dangerous, as evil, as backwards, these states, be it the Roman Empire or the, the Han Dynasty, uh, could create fear and create a clear them, which then solidified the us. In Southeast, Southeast Asia, the Han Chinese uh, basically barbarized, which is the, you know, the English word now to make someone seem like a barbarian. They barbarized any foreign culture and, and emphasized their backwardness. Even the, the, the word, uh, the name China, uh, and I'm probably not going to pronounce this wrong, but in Chinese, like Xina, it literally means center of the world, uh, which suggests that everything that's not in China is outside. Fear of an evil them helps solidify us versus very simple primal survival fears. And one thing that's interesting in terms of the Sumer Sumerian War, this first recorded war, is that prior to this war, there are no records of Elam existing, right? There's the individual city-states that make up Elam, but there's no record of Elam as one united culture even, even though they spoke the same language. Now, it could be simply 
that the Elamite records or the pre uh, pre invasion Elamite records were destroyed. Uh, and, you know, obviously King and Mabar Gacy and his Sumerian forces were the conquering force. So they were the ones who wrote history and, and the other versions maybe were gone. But there's also a theory that Elam didn't really exist as an abstraction. It was just a bunch of separate city-states that all operated on their own, um, basically were their own civilization. And they only formed together in response to the them of Sumer. Right? They, they only had a reason to uh, basically grow or, or become a united front when they were collectively invaded by an external them, right? which is, again, an example of the Red Queen theory, where they had to get bigger in, in response to a competing force. Now, othering people often gives people reasons to unify. I mean, for a very recent example, I grew up in New York. In, uh, when the 9-11 attacks occurred in 2001, the murder rate in New York dropped to zero for a few days, which was uh, you know, a very significant thing. I think, I think for the entire, it might have been for the weekend after 9-11, there were zero reported murders. It doesn't mean that there were no murders, but zero reported murders, which was a significant drop from the average of two to three murders a day that was occurring in New York during that time period. Now, another thing is of note is that people are willing to give up their autonomy when they're afraid, which is something we're going to come back to a little bit. And also having an enemy to fight solidifies the perimeter, right? It gives very, uh, is a very clear boundary if someone's invading you, and therefore you can contain what's inside of it. Now, that's all well and good when there's an external threat. When there's, in times of war, you can get everyone to band together for their, you know, mutually beneficial survival. But if you want to prevent fragmentation within your group, then you need to also look at unifying internally as well. Because in peacetime, there is a risk of your people drawing internal us versus them alienations. Because just remember, in your newly consolidated Brady Bunch tribe, your tribe were previously made up of unique peoples with unique cultures. A culture is a perceived set of commonalities that allows people to identify with each other, right? If if just one person has a certain trait or has a certain behavior, it's an idiosyncrasy. But if many people do in a given location, then it's a meme in a culture. Now, having multiple cultures growing within your tribes uh, will create hierarchical incentives that run counter to the interests of your groups, right? So like, yes, everyone will unite to fight the foreign invader, but when there's no foreign invader, when there's no external threats, well, when there's an internal dispute, they will, of course, side with the people they're closer to, right? Just remember that thing uh, from, uh, that I mentioned, the Bedouin proverb, me and my brother against my cousin, uh, me and my cousin and my brother against the world, right? There's a hierarchy of who you favor, right? So as a leader who wants peace and prosperity, even when they're not being uh, invaded, of course, is you'd want to flatten or homogenize the culture, right? Flattening meaning you're creating more commonalities. You know, the term homogenization uh, means making things uniform. Probably read this word on a carton of milk. To homogenize milk is to make the, the milk uniform throughout, right? Instead of having different densities within the liquid, you're making everything interchangeable. It's essentially, you're increasing the entropy of the system. Now, one way that new states, new imagined communities flatten culture was through a method called syncretization which is a conflation of different belief systems. So the Romans, oh, who we're, we're going to visit in a, in a couple episodes, did this really well with uh, gods. A lot of the peoples they conquered had a, a similar 
a pantheon of uh, polytheistic gods. And the Romans would just say, oh, they're the same thing, right? Your goddess of love, you know, is called Aphrodite. Ours is Venus. Uh, this one is Freya. They're all the same thing. They're just different names for the same person. And by doing that, they could absorb the culture and basically have people just relabel things and act as if they're one culture. Later on, Christianity did this. Probably aware of this already. Easter is actually a, a pagan fertility ritual. The fact that Christmas Day is on the 25th is also for pagan reasons, as it coincided with the winter solstice uh, festival that many uh, pagan religions uh, had. Uh, so when uh, Christianity was trying to spread its culture, it would have been a hard sell to completely wipe out the other people's holidays, so they kind of just merged them together. We're going to return to this idea of relabeling in later episodes and later generations, all the way up to modern-day Marxism. Because the goal of this, as done by Marxist states and as uh, satirized in George Orwell's 1984, is that states have more control when every individual person's primary relationship is with the state itself, right? Like if you, you know, in your hypothetical tribe, if people are more bonded to their family group, to their grandfather, if they see their grandfather as a greater authority than you as a tribe, well, that's going to cause you problems in leading this group, right? They're, they're going to see themselves as separate, um, as opposed to if you can get everyone to trust in the state more than they trust in their family, more than they trust in their brother, more than they trust in their neighbor, well, then, I mean, you've create, essentially created a centralized group, which is a lot easier to control and direct. Under Genghis Khan, uh, who we'll also revisit in a later episode, and we've, we've mentioned briefly, one of his uh, great advancements uh, that, you know, some... Uh, more liberal commenters like to um, highlight is that uh, he was one of the first conquerors that preached entire uh, religious tolerance, which is unusual for the time and and before that, right? Religious tolerance is not something that uh, conquerors of that era or, or any era in antiquity was okay with. But actually, he was okay with all religions because he emphasized that anyone conquered by the Mongols was a Mongol first. You can be a Christian Mongol, you could be a Buddhist Mongol, but your your primary group identity was Mongol. So from a control perspective, he didn't really care what religion anyone practiced because religion was not nearly as important as allegiance to the Mongol nation. Now, another method of, uh, of flattening the culture is to move people around, right? If, you, if people all live around uh, the people they grew up with, around their family ties, of course, they're going to have greater bonds with those people. Whereas if you move people around, if, you know, just with our hypothetical tribe, you, you make people mix up their, their, uh, their, their tents or whatever, you know, their, their teepees, what, however they're living. If you make them, uh, move around and live next to people that they didn't grow up with, you've weakened the family ties so that they could have a greater allegiance to the group ties. This is a very uh, common practice in modern day cults or actually cults throughout history where they, uh, break up previous existing relationships, whether it's love relationships or family relationships, and create new ones. They give people a new sense of family. A lot of cults uh, arrange marriages or arrange relationships because by doing it under the um, authority of the the major group, in that case, the cult leader, or this, this applies to states as well, that moving people around, you force them to only have a primary relationship with the, the greater entity. Another way to flatten culture is to enforce a similar language. 
A language is a set of symbols that connect abstract meanings to concrete actualities. Uh, so for instance, uh, you're listening to this podcast right now, I assume uh, you speak English. So when I describe something, say I describe a battle, you see something similar in your head that I see in my head because we agree to the definitions of words, right? It's, it's uh, We have to have the same language to then have the same perceptions of things. A common language is a precursor to a common culture. Because of course, if we can't agree on what words mean, we can't agree on our perceptions of the meanings, right? So this is one of the reasons why conquering peoples have often forced the conquered peoples to adopt their language, and sometimes they would even ban the previous language. In the 1200s AD, when England conquered Wales, they made the language of Welsh illegal uh, up until relatively recently. Um, when the state of Israel was created, one of their first steps was to revive the dead language of Hebrew and, and make sure everyone could speak it as a bonding mechanism for this new state. Uh, and separating states, once we're resisting being conquered, often insist on keeping their language alive, even if it's uh, not not necessary just for communication. So some examples from uh, more recent history, uh, we might still call it current events, or if you look at uh, Catalonia in Spain, uh, that province has wanted to separate from Spain, or there have been people who've wanted to separate from Spain. And even though everyone in uh, Catalonia speaks Castilian Spanish, Many people will try to speak Catalan, or they prefer to speak Catalan just to preserve their culture as a separate entity. In Canada, Quebec, uh, when there was the separatist movement uh, for Quebec to become its own country and separate from Canada, uh, this was largely enforced by people, culturally enforced by people speaking French, right, or Quebecois. Had they lost their French, had they, you know, had Catalan uh, become a dead language, it would have been very difficult to separate. A common language allows for a common culture, which then allows for a common mythology. Mythology, uh, mythology is a story that creates meaning, for, usually for a group of people. Modern-day mythologies enforce various values. Uh, even like today, our popular shows essentially teach the generation of children what normal behavior should be. Right? I was actually speaking about this. Uh, I'm a recent father. I was speaking about this with uh, another recent father on how our model of what a father is subconsciously comes from the shows we watch. A lot of the family sitcoms that we grew up watching in the 90s kind of show uh, the father of family is like kind of this bumbling oaf, right? And we were talking about how we wonder how that's like subconsciously incepted us to see ourselves as the father role uh, as like kind of this guy who doesn't, you know, is incompetent and is kind of useless. Whereas if you look at the, you know, just a uh, generation earlier at like the family sitcoms of the seventies, the father figure was often portrayed as something very different, right? As a, a guy who was very competent, but also maybe was a little bit too mean. Like if you think of like Archie Bunker, you know, uh, you know, maybe not as tolerant as you should be, but he wasn't portrayed as a, a bumbling oaf the way you know, Homer Simpson was, or, you know, Danny Tanner in Full House, right? And, you know, this is just the thing to look at, right? These are mythologies that enforce our norms, because in both the 70s and the 90s, there were oaf dads and there were competent mean dads, but our culture seems to pick one at a time and enforce a certain archetype on us. Now, for, for uh, ancient cultures, creation myths and origin stories are some of the most important mythologies because they solidify group identity and they justify a positive value assessment uh, for future actions. So, you know, something that uh, many groups have done is uh, 
claim that they're the chosen people or the special people, right? Like I mentioned, China, China being the center of the world. Obviously,、uh, you know, the Jews see themselves as the chosen people. A lot of groups have, have created some sort of mythology, making them the most important people, which is just a useful mythology for、um, going through life and having solidity, right? No group would ever make their origin story. We're the second-class citizens, right? Like we're the lesser peoples, and we're you know, no one ever would ever do that. That would be a very、um, not useful group identity. And the only times that's ever happened in history have been when it's been imposed by another group. I mean, for Judaism、uh, in particular, and we're going to speak about Judaism and the other monotheistic religions in more depth in a couple episodes. Their memes. Have been incredibly powerful as survival mechanisms, right? Even in the face of direct persecution, and you know, their culture has、uh, almost been conquered many times. But some of these memes, some of these mythologies, have allowed them to preserve themselves over five thousand years, even in a very harsh environment. Now, the best mythologies for you, say, as the ruler of a new group, is one that not only provides group unity. But also supports your kingship, right? Because it's it's it would be great, you know, it'd be fine if the group sees itself as okay, we're a united, whatever we call ourselves,、uh, but we don't believe in you as king. Well, that would obviously challenge your ability to centralize. So many mythologies、uh, not only solidify group identity, but they justify a royal family's position. One interesting point that James Scott notes in his books is that. It's only the the static, permanent civilizations that really needed written histories, right? Ones that、uh, can show some sort of permanence and be followed even many generations after the writers were dead. Whereas nomadic or stateless peoples often have fluid oral histories that are almost purposely modified generation to generation to meet the needs of the people, and very often they enforce egalitarianism. Or prevent one family or one person from ha- from having a major rule over everyone else. In fact, one of the tribes that he mentioned, the Lisu people, they don't have many mythologies. In fact, they almost they don't have any origin story.、Um, they have w- one of their primary mythologies, though, is one that basically is a story of how the Lisu people will kill any chief who becomes too bold, <laughs> right? Which is like. An, an interesting message of the people basically telling whoever leads them、uh, not to become too bossy because we kill we kill chiefs who get too strong. Versus, you know, a state-based mythology or a, a dynastic mythology has to represent or has to、uh, state that our family was granted、uh, kingship by God, and you know we should not be、uh, questioned. Right? Many early states, many early kings. Use some sort of deification or divine rights to state that they were the ones that, as determined by God through all of time, were the ones who were supposed to be in power. One of the first records of kings is what's known as the Sumerian king list, which is basically it means a, a list of all the Sumerian kings with a, a couple notes of who they were. And what's interesting about this is that it does have, I mean, King Enmeri Baragasi and many other kings that we know did exist are on the king list. But there are also individuals on the Sumerian king list that are basically、uh, are gods, like、uh, from the Sumerian pantheon, where you know it'll say like, okay, this god、uh, died, and then his rule was passed on to this person who was real. Even King Enmebaragesi himself, who was a real person, according to the Sumerian king list, ruled for nine hundred years, right? So he kind of became a god in itself. 
So it, at this point, this is still considered prehistory because uh, the historical records are not exactly accurate. For example, in another culture, we look at the Vikings, who we'll also visit in a later episode. The king of the Norse gods, Odin, was actually very likely a real person, right? There's evidence that there was a real chief of a pre-Norse uh, tribe uh, that uh, originated in the Caucasus who led his people. He was known as Wotan. He led his people from the Caucasus to modern-day Scandinavia. And because of his feats, because of the oral mythology built around him, over time, essentially became upgraded to god status, right? So all of the stories about Odin, the god, many of them at least, probably were based on real stories that were not so fantastical. I mean, like the, that he lost one of his eyes in battle probably was real, right? And that got passed on. And then, you know, just like a game of telephone, uh, eventually it became a tall tale where Odin is now the king of the gods. And actually, King Enmebar Gacy himself, uh, I've had some practice saying that name now, it's actually a sentence. Enmebar Gacy are four Sumerian words that translate to priest who is fit to rule the land. Right? It's uh, essentially a title that uh, says that he is all, not only connected to the gods, he's also been determined to be the ruler. And actually, it's interesting to note that many surnames all the way to present day are actually, or they originated as titles or labels for a group identity. Right? If we look at common European last names, a lot of them are uh, based on professions. Right? Miller, Smith, Cooper. These are all these are all crafts pr- professions, right? Like the the common Israeli last name Cohen, it means that you were from uh, a tribe of priests. The Cohens were priests, or they may a lot of uh, surnames uh, denote your father, right? Johnson, son of John, or the common uh, Slavic um, suffix uh, Vich, like Milosevic, means son of Milo. Uh, in in Asia, a lot of uh, the last names are based on an ethnic group or caste, such as the Gurung, which is an ethnic group in, in Nepal and northern India, or Singh, which is a, a last name adopted by the Sikh people, or Patel, a very common Indian last name, which essentially denotes that they're a landowner, right? These, uh, these familial last names often came from some sort of labeling of group identity. Now, homogenizing culture, by doing this, by flattening the culture, you can better control the group using another set of abstractions, which is morality. We briefly mentioned morality in the last episode, and it's going to be an important theme through our series as it's a a major way to affect group behavior, and it's a huge part that affects male psychology. Morality is a set of guiding principles. It helps simplify decision-making by making a clear distinction of good versus evil, or right versus wrong. Last episode, we discussed how the meme of honor developed as a way to incentivize men to sacrifice self-preservation for the sake of the group. Last episode, I referred to Stone Age honor as proto-honor because it was less of a moral value and more of a practical behavior. Within a small social group, honor solved the game theory dilemma of whether men should save themselves or protect the tribe when the tribe was attacked. And if you displayed an honorable behavior... You and your offspring were more likely to survive because friendly men had an incentive to ally with you and hostile men had a, were disincentivized to fight you. Groups that instilled honor in men were better at surviving than groups that didn't. Therefore, the meme of honor was passed on. The cause and effect relationship of a value like honor was concrete because in a small tribe, reputation was symmetrical. 
Everyone knew each other equally. Everyone had a file on each other. But in a large impersonal tribe, honor becomes more abstract because reputation is no longer symmetrical. Whereas your settlement before the consolidation, your, your small tribe, was kind of like a bunch of families camping or an extended family that all went out to stay in the woods together, now it's something more like Burning Man, right? It's, it's really too big to know what's going on on the other side of the playa. And for the first time in this new, large, consolidated tribe, a given man's reputation could spread to people beyond his ability to observe back. You couldn't fully know what people thought of you or if they even thought of you at all. Honorable conduct, therefore, became less about proving yourself to specific people and more about displaying yourself to a large, anonymous audience. Affecting people's opinions of you became less of a dialogue and more like, a, more like performing on stage. They all could see you, but you couldn't necessarily see them back. And even though our neocortex evolved to be capable of abstraction, our emotions did not. Right? This is the root of, the com- of common neuroses like social anxiety. It's ki- almost ubiquitous nowadays because our social brain did not evolve to be concerned with the opinions of thousands of people that we don't really know. And unfortunately, I mean, a very common example of this is how younger people behave on social media, especially people who grew up with social media when their brains were still forming, where they overly worry about likes or get addicted to scrolling. It's essentially our mammalian social brain attempting to behave as if it's in a small tribe at hundreds of times the scale that it was built for. And since a person's actions did not always get direct social feedback, rewarding or punishing, there had to be some way to guide people's behavior on a mass scale. And here is where we see the creation of abstract morality. Morality, as we think of it today, is a set of guidelines that is abstracted or apart from direct concrete occurrence. A moral code tells us what is right and what is wrong, whether or not there's someone watching to reward or punish us directly. We're going to keep revisiting the idea of morality throughout the series because as civilization evolves, so does morality and therefore so does male psychology. If mythology helps homogenize culture, then morality helps homogenize psychology. If everyone has the same moral values, you can get them to attempt to do the same things, ideally that benefit the group. But it's not enough to rely on abstract culture on its own to keep the group together. After all, The rational reason for anyone to join a group is survival. In other words, you have to feed them too. King Enme Bargesi was the first king to conduct war due to his unprecedented economic power. Other civilizations simply didn't have enough energy for a 160-mile journey. 160 miles represented what Richard A. Gabriel called his strategic range, which is basically the logistical range of an army, how far an army could campaign based on their current support. At this time, of course, logistics technology was relatively inefficient. Uh, it was undeveloped. So the costs of any journey were huge for every mile. And this concept of strategic range is very important, and we're going to come back to it in different episodes because it determined the scale of battle. Right At this time, uh, 160 miles was the absolute max. In later eras, of course, you know, the range of war is going to eventually encompass the entire world. And this is based on logistical power, economic power, not so much the weapons technology. But even for King and Maybar Gacy, this was an incredible feat of a 160-mile strategic range. Fighting was all he could do at this point. 
at this scale. All the records state this uh, interesting sentence uh, that he made Elam submit and took their weapons. Right, all the records of this war specifically say that King and Babargesi took their weapons, which could be a symbolic sentence. You know that in that he demilitarized them, he destroyed their army, therefore destroyed their defense, took their arms, or it also or and can be literal that he all he could do at that range was take their stuff. Right, he could not rule over people at 160 miles. The best he could do is exact tributes under threat of another attack, which is kind of like a civilization-level extortion. And as mentioned before, even Sumer itself, it wasn't a united civilization. It was actually kind of this, again, city-level extortion where, you know, the king of Kish expected tributes and military support from the other cities, but he didn't have the economic power or logistical power to actually govern over these other um, otherwise autonomous groups. He didn't have the economic power to actually rule over the foreign lands that he conquered. However, 400 years later, the man who would rule Sumer would accomplish this feat. In circa 2300 BC, a king named Sargon of Akkad conquered Sumer, creating the first empire. Now, an empire, as opposed to a kingdom, is where one government has political control over other governments. Now, it's important to note that uh, empires can be led by any form of government. The Athenian Empire, which we'll visit next episode, was led by a democracy. The Roman Empire was initially led by a republic. The British Empire was a monarchy much later. Um, But in the Bronze Age, monarchy was the primary form of government, having evolved from the chiefs of tribes, which evolved from alpha males of packs. A monarch who leads an empire is an emperor. In conquering Sumer, he created the Akkadian Empire and Sargon cemented his title as Sargon the Great, and he was, as far as we know, the first real emperor. And of course, when we go back this far in time to the 2300s BC, history tends to get mixed up with legends. Uh, there's so many stories about Sargon uh, that are obviously fiction. And actually, his alleged birth story is almost exactly the same as the birth story of Moses in the Bible. Uh, it's very similar to Oedipus in Greek mythology and Karna in the Hindu Mahabharata. Uh, some version of he was hidden at birth, uh, he was discovered by noble step-parents and uh, raised to state leadership even though he was born as a peasant. Joseph Campbell and Otto Rank have suggested that this is a cross-cultural archetype uh, the king who was initially born a peasant. And you know, if you just look at it from a propaganda standpoint uh, or a control standpoint, this is a, a very useful mythology, right? Like if the king claims to have been from the peasants, then not only is he right to rule, but uh, he has uh, he can get some allegiance from the poor people that a, a king of uh, alleged noble birth or pure noble birth wouldn't have, right? He's one of us. You know, a peasant can look up to him and be like, oh yeah, he is king. He is telling us what to do. But he was one of us, right? It's a good mythology. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But what we do know about Sargon, for sure, is that he was in 34 recorded wars over a 50-year reign, um, which is, of course, likely more accurate than King and Mabar Gacy's 900-year reign. And in his time, his army introduced various military advancements. Sargon had the first real standing army. Earlier rulers employed king's bodyguards of six to 700 professional warriors, 
Whereas all of the rest of the army were conscripted laborers, people who worked some other job most of the year, but then uh, were, you know, conscripted and became a soldier for maybe a couple months on campaign. Sargon was the first uh, known leader to expand his army to the degree of 5,400 members. Now, of course, by modern standards, this is still a meager amount. It's about the size of a brigade in the U.S. Army. It's also about the size of the high school I went to. But if we compare this to previous civilizations, uh, many of whom had a standing army of zero, or at most the six to 700 king's bodyguard, in comparison with this, where, where all warriors were mostly temporary, this is significant, right? Because to have a group of men who have no other job than war is in itself an advancement. Is an advancement only made possible by economics, right? If for a poor civilization who needs all its men to provide wealth, to be focused on um, internal power, they can't allocate a group of men to only focus on the external, to only focus on fighting. Armies of this era, as mentioned before, typically conscripted one out of 100 able-bodied men to fill their ranks in basically a draft lottery. And the main issue with conscripts was training, right? If most of the year they're focused on something else, you can only get them to do so much. Now, professional soldiers, on the other hand, could be taught tactics. They could be uh, taught uh, various, uh, they could be educated in, in the ways of fighting beyond uh, simple maneuvers, right? They can be trained to use more complex weapons like swords. Um, uh, they can learn various battle tactics. But a temporary soldier could not really be effectively trained in anything complex. Last episode, we harped on the resistance to killing that 98% of men have. But as we'll see, humans can be trained and conditioned into almost anything. Professional soldiers could spend months or years drilling. And this ability to train in formations in itself led to another military advancement that became prominent in the ancient world the first known effective unit formation, the shield wall. The shield wall is what you would expect, a wall of shields made by soldiers in formation who are usually armed with spears. Now, spears were the primary melee weapon of the masses because they were cheaper to produce and they required far less training than something like a sword or even a bow because there's only one thing you could do with a spear. Spears, of course, also have a ranged advantage over other melee weapons. But they're not so good in single combat versus, say, something more dexterous like a sword. Like if you've seen any of the old kung fu movies where the hero, who's almost always carrying a sword, uh, fights a bad guy or fights an enemy with a spear. Initially, the spearman seems to be doing well at range because the swordsman can't reach him until, of course, the swordsman parries and gets in close and then the spear is useless. So for the spear to really be effective, it had to be in formation. Uh, The shield wall made this perfect. And as with all military advancements, there was both a mechanical and psychological benefit. Mechanically, the combatants could engage in hand-to-hand combat with relative protection. As long as the group held formation, there shouldn't be gaps in which the enemy could attack, and the shield wall could essentially mow down an unformed enemy with this protection. You know, having the shields uh, lined up protects them, but also the length of a spear. You know, if the other if the others are uh, armed with something shorter, they can't reach them. So that that's a huge protection that allows a feeling of safety. But also psychologically, this advanced the ability to kill. Again, we see social pressure and group affinity 
as a, a major factor in killing, but with a major increase. Because in a Stone Age wild assault, if one of the attackers, if one of the soldiers got cold feet and it didn't effectively kill anyone, it was possible that he could go unnoticed in the bedlam. But in a shield wall formation, everyone's literally shoulder to shoulder, so everyone can see what you do. So if one man didn't do his part, he would put the whole group at risk. Right? This is another um, example of proto-honor, right? where direct observation enforces behavior. And uh, simply having this tight formation allowed for greater courage and therefore more violence. Many centuries later, uh, the French colonel and military theorist Ardan Dupic uh, would say this quote, translated into English, Four brave men who do not know each other well will not dare attack a lion. Four less brave, but knowing each other well, sure of their mutual aid, will attack resolutely. Which essentially is, uh, it describes this experience of when you know you're with people who are in formation, who you trust to do their parts, it just inspires you to essentially be bold. And this is the bigger the group, the bolder the actions, which is essentially what mob mentality is. When a group of people uh, trust that the others are going to do violence on their behalf, they all become a little bit more violent. The psychological advancement of the shield wall formation also in turn increased mechanical killing ability. It made it easier for men to employ a devastating technique that up until this point had been difficult to employ. Stabbing. Stabbing, meaning to thrust the sharp point of a blade or a spear, is many times more lethal than slashing no matter how sharp the blade is or how strong the fighter is. And it comes down to physics. The same applied force will produce many times more pounds per square inch in pressure, uh, thrusting a point rather than slashing with a sharp edge. Put more simply, stabbing puts more weight behind a smaller surface area, which means you can tear up more human flesh. This is why in Krav Maga, the Israeli Defense Force martial art, repeated stabbing is frequently drilled. It's many times more lethal, but it's also far more challenging to get men to stab. Because when you stab, you're literally penetrating another man's body. In On Killing, Colonel Grossman takes a Freudian perspective on stabbing, making it similar to sexual penetration. Like you're literally entering another person's body and causing them a high magnitude of feeling. And this level of intimacy, even though we don't typically think of the word intimacy when it comes to violence, it is uncomfortable. And it's particularly confronting for the common 98% of men who prefer not to kill. In the American Civil War, there are many records of times when, after fixing bayonets to engage in lethal melee combat, the soldiers would then turn their rifles around and swing them like clubs to avoid stabbing the enemy. However, a tight formation, provided by the shield wall with spears, made it hard to do anything but stab and the social pressure encouraged men to keep their spear points pointed outwards. And the formation also made it easier to kill through what we call diffusion of responsibility. Thousands of years later in the 19th and 20th centuries, one of the reasons for execution by firing squad was that by having many soldiers fire at once, none had to feel guilty for firing the lethal shot. It only takes one bullet to kill a prisoner, but if there are many shots fired, then you never know who the killer really was. The shield wall acts the same way. The shield wall gave the same or similar psychological distance to the soldier because he wasn't a sole murderer. He was part of a unit that had a duty. People don't kill people. Formations kill people. The shield wall also epitomizes solid state war. It's the best way for a homogenous group of infantry to maximize their killing power. Because at this stage, 
and one of the reasons for this solid state style of war is that individual killing power was relatively low. Like you needed a lot of men doing the same thing to really be lethal. Because as mentioned, a spear in one-on-one combat is not that useful. A one spearman wasn't particularly dangerous on the battlefield. And actually the same thing was for, for missile weapons, for the archer. You know, bows, they're still using simple bows at the time, had a range of about 100 yards. You know, one archer at range isn't that useful. But put 50 or 100 archers together firing in unison and having 50 or 100 arrows coming at you at once, well, that's far more lethal than one. You know, it's, it's a, a magnitude much higher. The shield wall and the spearman was the strategic core of every early Bronze Age army. Battles were decided by which side could produce more brute force with their infantry and cause the other formation to break. Only once the enemy's line was broken, then the missile units would come in and exploit the hole, picking off exposed infantry until they began to flee. And this was mainly because the simple bow wasn't powerful enough to penetrate shields at range, so you had to wait for your infantry to break a hole in the line first. Then and only then the chase reflex would kick in and most of the actual killing would occur. Solid state war was all about mass. It was all about how many men you could get together, how many spears you could put more in formation, how many archers you could have shoot arrows at once. And a military could only accumulate as much mass as the economy of the group that backed it. Nomadic peoples could never really amass enough wealth to field huge armies. That could only be done by a certain kind of imagined community, a state. A state is a particular kind of imagined community that has a claim to static territory. Nowadays, the words nation, state, and country are often used interchangeably since the world is currently dominated by nation states. A nation state is a political unit that is both a nation and a state, but nations and states are not the same thing. A nation is an imagined community bonded by culture. There have been many nations that have existed, even fairly large ones, that did not have a claim to a specific territory, such as the nomadic hordes of the Huns or the Mongols, who I'll revisit in a later episode, or the tribal nations of the Americas prior to being corralled onto reservations by the United States of America, which was a nation state. But as the American Indian nations found out, states, static nations or static civilizations, have some major advantages over nomadic or non-states. By being sedentary, they were able to amass a huge amount of stored wealth that a mobile community simply wasn't able to put together. So let's imagine again that with your growing community, through your brilliant leadership, you have successfully flattened the culture. You've created a solid group identity and a unified imagined community. Essentially, you created a nation. But you can't rest on your laurels yet because You're not the only chief who's come up with this bright idea to grow beyond Dunbar's number. Throughout your area, there are other tribes consolidating into large imagined communities, creating other nations. And they are all a threat because just like no one wants to be the the smallest prey animal in an ecosystem, no one wants to have the smallest community as you'll always be vulnerable to the bigger ones, whether they choose to be hostile or not. And you, as the chief, your primary job, first and foremost, is security. Prior to going to a certain size, mobility was one of your tribe's greatest abilities. It helped you evade predatory groups. You know, your, your group was kind of like a squirrel. Small, but really fast, can move on a moment's notice, and your ability to move was your greatest security asset. 
But at a certain size, the cost of mobility begin to outweigh and even nullify some of the benefits. Obviously, the bigger the group, the harder to coordinate movement. But also finding suitable land would be increasingly difficult. Because when your group was smaller than 150 people, you could pretty much settle anywhere. You simply needed somewhere for your domesticated animals to graze and a relatively small area to sweat in. And the arable land didn't have to be all connected. You could all spread out, each finding your own little plots. Each family could pitch their own tent separately, plant whatever they wanted with ever, you know, even just in a couple square yards of uh, arable land. Because it wouldn't be too hard to round everyone else up when it was time to move. But with a large group, you have to be more picky. If you spread out too far from each other, you'd lose the benefits of being in a community. It'd be too difficult to maintain communication and therefore your control would become weakened. The more people you had, the worse this problem would be. So you would need to find land formations where many people could live very close together. You'd favor flat, fertile land. This is the reason why all early states settled in river valleys and flat plain regions. Now, what you probably learned in school uh, was the state-based narrative, which is valleys were needed to sustain life, that uh, it was only in these uh, fertile areas that people could really thrive. But that's actually not true, right? That's that's the narrative created by civilizations and the people who did choose to do that. But for millennia before states were formed, humans had been existing and thriving without being centered in valleys. Because as mentioned, a small group can plant on uneven land. They can live almost as easily on in hill formations and forests because when there's not that many people and lots of land, it's okay to be inefficient with your use of land, right? The 150 people can spread out over an entire mountainside uh, and, you know, find the little patches that are usable. Because, you know, at this at that stage, in the Stone Age especially, land was basically unlimited. But for groups that wanted to grow, provided that the land was fertile enough, the static location offered benefits that could nullify the loss of mobility. The one being continuous growth, because a state is more like a plant or an insect colony that continuously grow its internal and external functions because it doesn't have to move. A non-state entity, a nomadic tribe, let's say, is like an animal that can only grow so big because otherwise it will lose its ability to move around. Because it, it takes a lot of energy to move, just like any animal. The bigger the animal, the more energy it needs to move. Another benefit is that a static civilization could attract more wealth via trade. Like it doesn't have to go out and get it. It can attract traders to come to them. Because, uh, you know, for a small group, no tin peddler would travel weeks to sell or trade tin so that that group could make bronze. But for a civilization that could grow really big and basically buy in bulk, well, then it is worth it for a tin peddler or for a copper peddler to make the journey across the desert and make those trades. It allows for scale, essentially. And this is what allowed for bronze, right? Nomadic civilizations could sometimes create bronze, but they would have to basically go get the resources themselves. Like no trader would go out and seek them just to trade for a couple pounds here and there. And a third benefit of being static is that you could create static defenses, which were walls which are a literal perimeter that could stand in for men, right? For a nomadic horde obviously can't create walls. So the perimeter has to be filled in by human bodies, right? It's it's the fighting of the men that form the protection. But if you're staying in one place, stone can fill in, right? You can have stone walls. Uh, and actually, this was a, a mark of wealth for a Bronze Age civilization that they could build walls around their city, which was the core of their wealth. 
walls with just a few soldiers could basically nullify a huge invading army. Because for most of the Bronze Age, siegecraft weapons weren't really developed. So for an invading army to attack a walled city, their only tactic was basically to starve out the city, right? They could block off the trade and prevent new food from getting in, but they couldn't really do much about penetrating the city itself. So sieges basically came down to who had the greater store of food. Was it the city that was being invaded or was it the invading army that could generate enough wealth? Now, of course, walls could only be built around a city, which was the economic core, couldn't be built around the entire territory. So in light of these benefits, with the need to grow, becoming a state is an obvious move for you as the chief of this growing tribe. So you pick a fertile river valley and you plant your people there. And by evolving your tribe into a state, you yourself evolve from a chief into a king. As father is the family, chief is the tribe, and king is the state or a kingdom. Unlike modern states that are defined by their borders, ancient states were defined by their centers. The earliest states were city-states, which was a sovereign city that was the economic and political center of all of the surrounding territory. The definition of a city is a dense human settlement where most of the population works on non-agricultural tasks. Right, this is an important point, because cities were concentrations of wealth. However, a lot of that wealth originated from the outside, either through trade or through agricultural support of the surrounding territories. The borders of the surrounding territory were often undefined, because of course you can't build a wall around all of your farmland. So the allegiance of a given territory to its city was kind of tenuous, because a city's government could only exact so much control over people beyond its walls. And if you weren't controlling the people on a given land, then claiming the land was basically meaningless. Therefore, the size and strength of early states was not measured in terms of land, but in terms of people. There's a, a quote by the king of Golconda, which was a, a state in modern-day India, um, in response to a, a Siamese traveler, and they were arguing over um, who has the stronger kingdom, Golconda or Siam. And uh, the king of Golconda allegedly said this, It is true, I admit, that the Siamese kingdom is of greater extent than mine. But you must agree that the king of Golconda rules over men, while the king of Siam only rules over forests and mosquitoes. He said this in 1680, uh, when these states were relatively new, still actually in Southeast Asia. Of course, this is pointing to, I mean, the king of Golconda is making fun of the king of Siam by saying, yeah, you have more land, but you don't have that many people in it, right? I have the people, therefore I have the power. And actually, you know, in this part of the world, the early Thai kingdoms, the early was Siam at the time, uh, their titles of nobility literally denoted how many people they had under their jurisdiction. The equivalent of what might be a baron in England, their title was Kun Pan, which uh, would translate to Lord of a Thousand People. Their equivalent of an English duke would be Kun San. It literally means Mr. 100,000, but we would translate it to Lord of a 100,000 men, right? Because it's the measure of men that determined one's wealth and one's status, not anything else. Men, after all, were the source of both external strength and internal production power. This likely is the initial abstraction of people as human resources, right? The early states, therefore, competed over how many people they could put under their jurisdiction. And this time in human history, it was quite a bit of a challenge, because unlike modern day where 
Most of us have a passport that denotes that、uh, we are a citizen of a certain nation state.、Um, at this time, that didn't exist, right? As mentioned, a person's allegiance, especially if you lived beyond city walls, your allegiance to a state was very tenuous. In areas where early states were relatively close to each other, such as say in Southeast Asia, where a lot of people, a lot of farmers, maybe lived right between two city states. They may choose to pledge allegiance to one city state one year and to the other the next, based on the benefits and the threats. Right? It'd be basically based on which states would offer them better rewards of security, or and or who could offer worse punishments if they didn't pay tribute there. And the further one lived from a city, physically further, the less were the benefits of joining, and the less was the threat of punishment. So, if you didn't live anywhere close to a city state, you basically lived on your own. Right? You weren't really part of anything. You know, if, if you imagine、uh, the map of the world in these areas, of course, different regions of the world developed states at different times. So, if we were to draw a map of one of these regions where early states were forming, instead of drawing clear borders, which we couldn't do, it would be more like a gradient map, where the cities would be solid dots, and as you moved further away from the city, that that color would fade. It would also fade as you went up uneven terrain, right? On on flat plains. You know the the influence of the city could be maintained at a greater distance, and it would take longer before it faded out into white. Let's say, but if you're going up a hill, you know, just think about how difficult it is to move up a hill as opposed to flat land, right? Even someone who lives maybe relatively close in map distance to a city, but lives high up on a hill, you know, it's going to be hard for anyone to literally get up the hill, and therefore influence can't really go up the hill. Right, like、uh, it'd be harder for the warriors of the city to go up there and threaten them for tributes, but also be harder for the warriors of the city to go up there and protect them. Right, so you know, someone living up on a mountain probably isn't、uh, that greatly influenced by a state. And actually, you know, throughout history and even up to this modern day, we can see that people who have not been absorbed into states, as we see in say modern day Myanmar, in parts of Mexico where which are basically not under the jurisdiction of the the Mexican government, and you know again I, I mentioned、uh, the mountains、uh, in Afghanistan where you still have tribes who basically have no allegiance to the government of Afghanistan, regardless of what that government is. They live in the mountains, right? It's it's hard to get influence up into the mountains because it's hard to get people up into the mountains. So over distance and over uneven terrain, the abstract ideas of belonging to the imagined community becomes looser because it's hard to physically get anything over that distance. So on top of this, being stateless, which was a lot closer to the natural inclination of the human being, right? As as I mentioned a few times already. Throughout the Bronze Age, most people were stateless because our social instincts still prefer us to be part of small, familiar groups, and the male testosterone-driven instinct drives one to be autonomous unless strongly influenced to submit by a stronger external force. So, if a given people or family or tribe was able to feed itself through hunter-gathering and evade hostile forces through mobility. It really had no reason to be part of a state, right? It was kind of a hard sell、uh, to join a state, unless you know, unless they could really gain the benefits, which most wouldn't. So, as the new king of a new state, you'd have to find a way to get a lot of people to overcome their natural instincts to freely move about, and instead live in one place as close to you as possible. And the way that all early states got people to plant themselves in close proximity is actually a plant, a class of plants known as grain. 
Grains are a type of otherwise inedible grasses that can be made edible through processing. In Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, and I believe this is also mentioned in Sapiens, there's a theory proposed that humans didn't domesticate rice and wheat. We think of it that way. But from a genetic perspective, rice and wheat actually domesticated humans. These plants evolved in such a way that they were able to get humans to do massive amounts of labor to make them some of the most popular plants on earth. Rice and wheat would not be able to reproduce to this degree on their own. As most modern dietitians point out, grains are nutritionally inferior to meat and vegetables. There's actually a theory posed by Jack Weatherford, who, who wrote the, uh, one of the books on Genghis Khan that I draw from. Um, and he posed that one of the reasons why Genghis Khan's Mongols were able to fairly easily defeat uh, armies like the Jin Dynasty Chinese was because the Mongols ate a diet mostly of horse meat and horse milk. It's kind of more of like a Atkins paleo primal diet, whereas uh, the Jin Chinese, even though they had more wealth and they were better equipped, they ate primarily rice diets, right? So the Mongols were, were simply stronger and more robust and probably bigger than their Jin enemies. But rice and wheat didn't directly domesticate humans. They did it through states. Autonomous small groups of humans wouldn't choose to harvest grains on scale. Right. I mean, you, you can imagine, you know, a lot of people uh, do home gardening nowadays. You couldn't imagine one of your neighbors like planting wheat in his backyard, right? Like that would, you know, because it requires such scale to make planting wheat or planting rice worth it, right? And in this way, grains are kind of analogous to solid state war. You need a lot of it to make it worthwhile. You know, like one rice plant is kind of useless and it's actually an incredibly inefficient use of labor. And I've, I've, uh, Looked at this, uh, you know, firsthand. Uh, my my father's family is from Sri Lanka. My grandpa owned a rice, like a small section of a rice paddy field. We used to visit him in the in the summers, and I would watch them turn this grass into edible rice. And I would always think, like as a little kid, even like, damn, it is a lot of work to make rice edible. It is not like some other vegetable that you can pick and cook, or a fruit, or even meats where you can slaughter it and then you have the meats. Right? It's a lot of work to make rice. Now, this inefficiency of labor obviously wasn't good for the laborer, but it was good for the state because by keeping people busy and keeping people close, uh, you get more access to the people because even though it's uh, an inefficient use of manpower, it was a more efficient use of land, right? Swiddening, what, what most uh, Neolithic tribes did, required you to spread out. I mean, especially if you were you know, planting uh, in a forest or on a hill, you know, those families would spread out pretty far out. But with uh, monocrop agriculture, you could pack people in really close. It was an efficient use of land, which made, uh, made your population density a lot higher. Even animals need a lot of space, but grass, uh, grasses, wheat, rice can really be packed in. Grains greatly benefited states because they were a useful store of wealth. At this stage, money wasn't common, and certainly states did not interact with their people by exchanging money or some form of currency. Instead, when a state needed resources, it would levy them, meaning it would claim them with some sort of threat of violence. If a state needed food, it would levy food. If a state needed weapons, it would levy weapons. When King Enme Bargesi went on his campaign, he had to levy quite a lot of material in order to do that 160-mile campaign. But when it came to food, most forms of food 
which was the, the primary internal resource of any any civilization, most stores of food were not very storable, right? You can't really store meat forever, right? Maybe you store meat as the animal itself, but then that requires a lot of energy to keep the animal alive. Most fruits and vegetables also spoil easily, whereas grains could be stored dry, stored in a granary for very long periods of time, and then distributed as the state saw fit. So they were a much more, uh, they were a much better currency for storing food or food wealth, if you want to call it, and much more conducive to centralization. I mean, certainly, if you imagine any currency, you know, your, your uh, cryptocurrency, the dollars in your bank account, if it would spoil over time, it wouldn't be a very useful or decay uh, over time. Uh, I mean, I guess inflation is kind of that in a sense, but you get what I'm saying, right? Grains were much more useful as far as a store of food. And in addition to being storable, they had to also be legible as a resource. Legibility meaning how easy it was to track. Because nowadays, uh, states will measure their internal wealth with a figure known as GDP, gross domestic product. But GDP wasn't a very useful concept to these early states because you could only, the only amount of wealth, the only amount of product that mattered was what the state could claim. Right within these ancient states, since the their borders were fuzzy, and the further they were, the further land was from the central city, the less access the state had to the product. GDP wasn't that useful as a as a concept. What was a more useful concept is one that James Scott brings up in his books, which is SAP or state accessible product, meaning the only wealth that mattered to a given state was what it could actually claim. Right, if a farm was too far away from the central city, it would be too costly to claim that grain. So that grain basically wouldn't matter. And in addition to distance, it would have to be assessed by the tax collectors to to know exactly how much was being produced by a given land, so they could know how much they could claim or know when they can claim. This is easy with grain because a tax collector could go to a certain farmland periodically and basically see very easily with his eyes, assess visually, okay, the crops are at this level, okay, I'll come back in a couple months and expect to take 30% and it would be come out to this much. You can't do that with a lot of plants. Like you certainly can't do that with root vegetables, right? You'd have to be a pretty expert potato farmer, given that potatoes are under the ground, pretty expert to look at a potato plant and know how many pounds or kilograms of potatoes exist and know how much you could claim, right? It's very hard to assess root vegetables visually. Which is also interesting to note that cultures that adopted root vegetables as their primary source of carbohydrates versus grains kind of comes down to whether they were part of the state or resisting the state. Nowadays, especially in Europe, uh, we associate potatoes with Ireland, right? The Irish potato farmer. Potatoes actually are not native to Ireland, but they were adopted as a primary food source in Ireland during a time where there was resistance against English rule. And it was much more uh, useful to an Irish farmer to plant potatoes rather than wheat because his potatoes couldn't as easily be claimed by Englishmen in the way that, for the reasons that we described, right? It was hard for an Englishman to assess it. And it would also be difficult for some uh, some hostile lord or or something to actually claim the potatoes. I mean, it's a lot of work to dig up those potatoes. Whereas, you know, even if a farmer was unwilling, you know, a king or a noble could maybe send uh, send some of his workers, send some muscle and like just chop down 
the, the wheat and just claim it and take it home. Right? You can't really do that with potatoes. So the choice of a, a given community to uh, rely on root vegetables versus grains kind of represents this dichotomy we've been speaking about between raw and cooked peoples or state and non-state peoples. States, of course, therefore, pushed for grains, specifically monocrop agriculture. This would be wheat or rice, depending on the region. Wheat, obviously, is more popular in Europe. Rice, more popular in Asia. And as anyone knows who knows anything about uh, monocrop agriculture, it is worse for soil quality and worse for human nutrition to have most of your calories come from one grain, but much better for state control. And this is one of the reasons why empires usually expanded east to west. This is something Jared Diamond points out in Guns, Germs, and Steel. The reason why most empires expanded on a given latitude was that at a given latitude, it was much easier to replicate the same farming practices. Whereas if an empire expanded north to south, like say the Incan Empire did, at every latitude, they would have to come up with new farming practices because the weather would be different, the, the length of day would be different, you'd uh, come across different parasites. Whereas for you know empire that wanted to keep expanding, east to west just made it easy because you could do the same thing as you uh, encouraged or coerced people to become uh, monocrop grain farmers. So grains allowed a greater store of energy for a given superorganism, an early state, uh, which we can measure in calories. And I know it's, it seems funny to measure the strength of, of a state in terms of calories, but you needed a certain amount of stored energy to wage these wars. Sargon the Great went on to conquer the most land up until this point in history. But even he was limited at a certain point, mainly by his store of calories, his, his energetic or his uh, economic power. Another civilization would far outdo the Akkadian Empire by demonstrating a level of centralization and hoarding of economic resources that the world had never seen. While King Enmebar Gacy was launching the first war, all the way up to Sargon's creation of the first empire, another civilization was busy growing just over to the west in the Nile River Valley. And this direction west is something we're going to be following throughout our series uh, because there's a, an adage that money moves west, kind of like how money moves left at the poker table. Uh, the reasons for this are, are not clear, but you know, if you look at the center of economic power in the world throughout history, it seems to move west. It started in the Mesopotamia. We're now moving over to the Nile River Valley. Uh, next episode, we'll speak about how it moved over to Central Europe in the Greco-Persian Wars. Later on, Western Europe with colonial expansion up until Napoleon. Eventually, the British Empire gained hegemony over the world, putting London as the financial capital of the world. In the 20th century, that moved over to New York. In recent decades, it moved over to the West Coast uh, and Silicon Valley, and most recently across the Pacific to China. So if this trend follows, uh, we should all be making bets on India and perhaps Africa, maybe the Middle East again. The reason why this is important for us is that along with the peak of economic power is the peak of military advancement. We are going to visit uh, some, some civilizations to the east just to flush things out, like visiting the Mongols again. But this is basically the direction of peak civilization and therefore culture adaptation. Now, if there's ever a civilization that mastered centralization and reaped its benefits, it was the Kingdom of Egypt. The Kingdom of Egypt had developed much differently from those of Sumer, 
in Mesopotamia because instead of having many city-states that were constantly at war, Egypt up until the 1800s BC was relatively peaceful. The old Egyptian kingdom was able to develop in a unique fashion largely because they were isolated. Their entire civilization was along the Nile River from the delta in the Mediterranean in the north uh, down to Lake Nasser in the south. And their land was protected to the east and west by deserts. There were peoples in those deserts, but they were stateless nomadic tribes that never grew big enough to be a serious threat. They did have uh, some wars with the Nubians to the south, but the Nubians were not very technologically developed. Therefore, the Egyptians didn't have to invest in uh, advancing their warfighting abilities either. So Egypt focused more on peaceful innovations regarding economics, agriculture, and religion. If you remember from the prologue we spoke about in evolution, an organism has, or species, has so much energy to contribute to um, external functions or internal functions, or when it comes to uh, sexuality, same thing, right? You could uh, invest in testosterone-driven competitive instincts, or you can invest in uh, internal functions like longevity. There's this competition longevity trade-off. Given that Egypt was kind of like an herbivore species that had plenty of resource to eat and no predators, Egypt up, this, up until this point uh, developed in focusing on internal functions primarily, right? They became the most advanced culture, most advanced ec economy, because basically they could keep growing without threat. All of this was well and good until about 1782 BC when the Hyksos people came to Egypt. The Hyksos were a Semitic people that likely came from across the desert in the Levant. Now, Hyksos is not what they called themselves. We don't know what they called themselves because most, actually our only records come from Greek historians who gave them uh, Greek names. Uh, and the word Hyksos is Greek for rulers of foreign lands. This suggests that they were likely nobility from another kingdom, and they probably moved over to Egypt to avoid bloodshed in their homeland. Maybe they got deposed by some other dynastic family, and they jumped ship. That was really the only reason why an ancient ruling family would ever uproot their base after having established a kingdom. Most historians believe that the Hyksos came peacefully at first. They were likely attracted by the wealth of Egypt and initially came to trade. But at some point, they looked around saw there wasn't much of a military, and they decided to take over. There's conflicting evidence over whether they took over Egypt purely by force or through a combination of commerce and force, but over a span of years, they completed their hostile takeover of Egypt from the Egyptians. And when it came to fighting, they had far superior weapons technology. Kind of like a, a new predator introduced to a, uh, an ecosystem, the Hyksos took their place at the top of the food chain relatively quickly. But instead of eliminating the Egyptian dynastic families, they chose to vassalize them. They might have done this because they wanted to extract as much wealth as possible without having to do their own admin work. Maybe they didn't have the manpower to, to uh, oversee all the internal functions of the kingdom they just conquered. Or maybe they simply didn't see the Egyptians as a threat. But regardless of the reason, it turned out to be a grave mistake. Within a couple generations, the Hyksos were deposed by the people they had just conquered. This was, uh, was known as the 17th dynasty of Thebes, which again is a Greek name for the, the Egyptian dynasty. We don't know what they called themselves. Thebes should not be confused with the, the Greek city of Thebes, but this is what the Greeks named this dynasty. Uh, it was based in modern day Luxor in modern day Egypt. And even though the Hyksos had a relatively short reign, they are credited with 
advancing the most domestically wealthy state of Egypt with two key things they didn't have before. One was connecting them to the rest of the world. There's evidence uh, in, the, in the form of one of the Hyksos king's name has been found on objects as far as Crete, Baghdad, modern-day Baghdad, which was in the Hittite civilization. And this, uh, this is likely what led the later Egyptian kingdom, the new Egyptian kingdom, to be able to conquer these areas, right? Egypt didn't have any con uh, contact with these uh, civilizations prior to the Hyksos connecting them. And the Hyksos also gave the wealthiest civilization at that time the two greatest military advancements, the composite bow and the war chariot. Now, bows had been around for almost 10,000 years at this point, but it was only what's known as a simple bow. A simple bow is made from a single piece of curved wood, and it typically had a range of 100 meters or a football field, and had trouble piercing shields or armor from range. The composite bow is one made of multiple materials, usually wood and bone, and has a recurve design. The first composite bows were recorded in the army of Sargon the Great's grandson, Naram-Sin. And these ancient weapons, these ancient composite bows, had a range of 200 meters and could penetrate leather armor. The Hyksos also fired it from a shoulder quiver, which meant they could fire at a much higher rate than the previous Egyptian simple bowmen shooting uh, or loading from a, a waist quiver. Composite bows could eventually be made much smaller so the archers could be more mobile. And these two attributes, increased effective range and rate of fire, greatly changed battle tactics. Because we're still in the era of solid-state war, but instead of it becoming a purely force-on-force -force encounter between masses of infantry, battlefield commanders now had to be aware of unit placement and formation. Because now, composite bowmen were not only deadly from farther away, they had the power to penetrate a shield wall's tight formation, break through shields and armor, which made a tight formation of shield wall infantry especially vulnerable to a hail of arrows. Now, if the opposing infantry broke into a loose formation to reduce their casualties from arrows, they then lost the benefits of their shield wall and because they were vulnerable to the other infantry. So this made battle tactics a little bit less like checkers and a little bit more like chess. A commander had to know his unit's strengths and weaknesses and how to time maneuvers, which mattered just as much as the strength of his army. It was a move in the direction of liquid state war. It was also the beginning of combined arms tactics. Missile units now could decide battles too, so an army couldn't just blindly prioritize beefing up their infantry. The composite bow also worked with the second Hyksos advancement, the war chariot. The chariot was basically the tank of the Bronze Age. Anytime there were chariots in battle, they replaced spearmen infantry as the decisive unit. They also replaced the 2% natural-born killers in getting the huge majority of the kills. And again, they did this through both mechanical and psychological advantages. A war chariot is a wheeled vehicle pulled by horses. And the chariot had the speed and power to break holes in the enemy's shield wall for the accompanying infantry to exploit. They could also flank the enemy, get around the powerful shield wall's front and attack from its vulnerable side or rear, firing missiles at every angle. Typically, there was one driver and one warrior who was armed with a composite bow and a spear. The flat platform made it easier for the warrior to fire arrows as compared to the early cavalry that would come a little bit later. Now, it wasn't until the Iron Age that horses were bred to be big enough to be used effectively as cavalry, and during the Bronze Age, even the composite bow was too big to be fired from horseback. It would be in the next generation, the smaller composite bows with the same power would be designed, and horseback archers became the primary unit of many armies, including 
uh, Genghis Khan's army a little more than a thousand years later. The chariot also added a psychological innovation. It was the first crew-served weapon. Crew-served weapon is a modern military classification for any weapon that takes more than one person to operate. Crew-served weapons throughout history have been major killers from the gunpowder age into modern warfare, and the reasons are the same as with the shield wall formation. Social pressure, group affinity, uh, and responsibility for each other's survival, and also diffusion of responsibility. And the pressure is even greater because there's only a few of you rather than an entire platoon or formation. If the chariot's warrior didn't fire, then the driver would have driven into enemy range for nothing. The driver also had to drive in a way that made it possible for the warrior to kill without putting them in too much danger. It's interesting to note that in the modern day, sniper rifles are considered a crew-served weapon by the U.S. military. The U.S. Army and Marine Corps employ sniper teams, and with addition to the shooter, also will include a spotter and sometimes a flanker. These supporting roles assist with ancillary tasks, carrying ammunition, and providing security. But they also provide some social expectation and a diffusion of responsibility. They've been found to be far more effective than solo snipers for this reason. Even though the modern-day sniper and ancient chariot warrior knows that it was his marksmanship that allowed for the kill, at least to his social brain, it was really the crew that killed, not him. But Idris' biggest contribution to warfighting was due to its administrative abilities. Developed due to their peaceful economic boom, Egypt had an intricate scribe network that tracked and organized everything from the top down. This led to the first known military org chart. They used a core of professional officers of noble birth who were given extensive military education and leadership. They were also one of the first armies to introduce small unit leaders of who were not of noble birth, the NCO. An NCO, or non-commissioned officer, is a modern military term for a unit leader who rose up from the enlisted ranks rather than being placed into leadership due to noble birth or education. NCOs in the Bronze Age were mainly used to train newer troops, such as modern-day drill sergeants. Centralization was such a, a key contribution of Egypt because a state can only muster as much power as it is centralized. And the more centralized a state the more the people need to be subjugated. To understand this, let's look one last time at your hypothetical new kingdom. Your community now has grown to a huge size. You've recognized the need for a grain-based economy and a sedentary population. You're creating a city-state. But all that's easier said than done. Because back in your small tribal days, there were certainly times that you and your people needed to sacrifice for the greater good. Simply fighting to defend the tribe was a personal sacrifice. But it wasn't such a hard sell due to the forces of our social brain. Recall from the prologue that while testosterone drives individuals to compete for the highest possible place in the hierarchy, oxytocin drives one to be included in the group. It's the combination of these two drives that makes a stable dominance hierarchy. A man in your small personal tribe was willing to accept lower status because it was better for his survival too. His neuroendocrine system rewarded him with positive feelings that came from pro-social behavior. It didn't matter so much that he was giving up some autonomy to the chief and the group because everyone's incentives were aligned. The natural check and balance between the chief and the tribe ensured that, for the most part, everyone's needs were met. Wealth was closer to evenly distributed. Power differentials weren't so dramatic. In other words, the dominance hierarchy was not so steep you're much closer to being peers. But now in your new kingdom, 
your group is no longer held together by an oxytocin reward system. There are some people you know well, your close friends and family, but most of your citizens are basically strangers. So now the individual and group incentives are not so well aligned. Sure, a grain-based economy is great for the group as a whole, but it's not so great for the actual peasant who now has to work the farm. The agrarian peasant has to do so much more work now than if he was off on his own, stateless, because a lot of the product of his labor is now taken to feed the state, meaning feeding other people in the imagined community that he does not know and has no connection to. And primarily it means feeding you and your family. Remember, while the initial consolidation of tribes was mutually beneficial, the whole reason why you invited the other people in was because it would promote the survival of your people. In a sense, you're using these other people to support your genetic lineage. You tax their labor in return for their protection, but then you also conscript them into your military in order to create that protection. Early peasants may have at times opted in to be lower class in exchange for security from the higher class, but this was only rational when there was a major threat from the outside. Most people are willing to give up their autonomy when they're afraid. Uh, this can be seen in many examples throughout history and how the Roman Republic gave dictatorial powers to a consul in times of war. Uh, let's look at Hitler's rise to absolute power from being chancellor. We could even look at the modern day pandemic and how the degree to which people were willing to give up personal freedoms kind of came down to how afraid they were. And in the early states formation, early Bronze Age, many people actually did not join the states willingly. Literal slavery is as old as states. Because, you know, in our hypothetical example, we just for the sake of uh, illustration, we assumed that the other chief would defer to you willingly. But in reality, this probably never actually happened. Someone had to conquer someone else. Someone had to be forced into subjugation, if not killed. And all early states in every part of the world where states were being formed had to continuously repopulate their state from the outside. This was done through slave raiding, you know, going into non-state communities and claiming people to become literal slaves, or corvée labor, some sort of forced labor, and even the, the military conscription with citizens who may be identified as citizens, they often had to be forced to join the military. And without this forced conscription, this forced uh, use of labor, the states would never be able to grow and it would actually collapse because given the fact that for any person who was not in the noble family or the noble class, it kind of wasn't such a good deal. A lot of people would consistently leave the state whenever it was possible or there was a better incentive elsewhere. This was simply because in many situations, it was much better to be off on the wild on your own with your small family than it was to be at the bottom of some very tall pyramid. So for states to continue to exist, they had to employ some form of forced labor. And if you look at your early kingdom, if you wanted your early kingdom to exist, you had to do something like that too. It wasn't because you're cruel or evil. It's simply because this is the only way to keep the state together, which is the only way to further your genes in a harsh and increasingly competitive world. The main reason why we've been going through this illustrative story in second person and why I've been stressing your benevolent intentions as a chief is not just for fun. It's to show that while throughout history, of course, people have subjugated each other with malicious intent, 
the inequities of a society were inevitable. The larger and more complex a social system, the greater the inequality. Otherwise, the society would fragment. As we'll see in later episodes, no political or social system can escape the natural dominance hierarchy. The only difference is the size and the scale. If we imagine dominance hierarchies as pyramids made of sand, then pre-state tribes were many tiny pyramids, and the distance between the top and the bottom wasn't so great. As these pyramids combined, the pyramids got taller, so the distance between the top and the bottom became greater. In other words, the difference between a high-status person and a low-status person in terms of lifestyle became greater. So eventually, the difference between the top and the bottom of a pyramid becomes so great that they're basically not in the same society or social reality any longer, even if they are in the same imagined community. This is what brought about the class system in society. It's also the root of a major fissure in male psychology. As we discussed earlier, morality is a set of abstractions meant to guide behavior. A society functions best when it has a unified morality. By having similar values, a group can coordinate their actions to best their survival chances. For your small Stone Age tribe, it was pretty easy for everyone to adopt similar values because everyone was basically subject to the same set of causes and effects. Whether you were high status or low status, you were still free to interact directly with the environment. But for members of a Bronze Age state, this was not the case. As impersonal societies stratified, there became two fundamental classes of people, the rulers and the ruled. Now, different cultures organized these groups in different ways, sometimes with a caste system or organizing people by ethnicity or by trade. And in many cases, these classes themselves were also further stratified or had some sort of internal continuum. For example, within the ruling class, there were levels. There were lesser nobles who were under higher nobles who were under the king. The ruled class could also be stratified into merchants and free workers, servants to slaves. But for simplicity, we'll look at these two fundamental classes because of the functional difference between the two groups, which is autonomy. The ruling class, or nobles, could still act on their free will. They may need to answer to the king or higher nobles, but for the most part, they were autonomous. Kind of like the low-status members of a Stone Age tribe, the consequences of their actions were still mostly determined by the natural world, even though sometimes they had to answer to someone higher than them. But for the ruled class, the commoners, they always had to answer to the entire class of nobles, whether they were slaves who had zero autonomy, or even a free citizen who had to answer to the laws of the state, which were not determined by them, but by the ruling class. The results of their actions were largely determined by someone else. And this led to a divergence in value perception and therefore a split in morality. To understand this, we're going to look at the idea of nobility by philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. It's not the most politically correct set of ideas, but I think it's the most useful model for understanding this. Nietzsche said that there are two kinds of morality, master morality and slave morality. Master morality is the value system that evolved for the noble class. Similar to Stone Age morality, any value that promoted group survival was seen as good. So values like strength, honor, and courage were especially valued in men. Other pro-social traits like integrity were also invalid because they enhanced the noble class's ability to work together and therefore thrive. Slave morality, on the other hand, is the value system of subjugated peoples. 
Since it's unnatural to be subjugated by strangers, slave morality represents a divergence from our natural psychological reward system, resulting in values that are sometimes opposite of how we evolved. For example, if the son of a high noble got into an altercation with the son of a peasant, the noble boy had every reason to win the fight decisively. If he didn't, he would weaken the perception of his family, which could disturb their position of power, which would threaten all of their well-being. Therefore, his family would raise him to value strength, courage, and honor at all costs. But for the peasant boy, winning the fight, or even displaying too much strength, honor, and courage against the noble boy could be a very bad idea. If he made the noble boy look bad, there would be punishments. The noble family would likely come back with muscle to punish the poor boy, maybe punish his entire family to deter future threats from the peasant class. So the commoner boy would be raised to defer to nobles. The survival of his family would not depend on strength or courage, but on the nobles liking him. So he instead would be raised to appear weak instead of strong. He may learn to speak in a vague manner to avoid punishment rather than speak in a clear one. His morals would be based on avoiding punishment rather than gaining power. Since these are opposite the virtues that were useful to his male ancestors, slave morality represents a devolution of masculinity. Whereas in the small personal tribe, even the lowest status male still took up some space on the perimeter, in the large impersonal states, there's a whole group of men who now have been removed from the perimeter completely. Social stratification pushed the lower classes away from the perimeter in terms of responsibility and autonomy. Slave morality is only a useful mechanism when you are inside someone else's perimeter. While all moralities exist to further the survival of the group, master morality assumes that you are free to determine your own destiny, while slave morality assumes that you're only safe if you're accepted by the group. So this represents two very different realities. We're going to continually revisit this dichotomy of master versus slave morality because as civilization evolves, these two moral forces will greatly impact the development of society and male psychology. The class system itself was a military advancement in that it made it psychologically easier to conduct killing on a mass level. In the same way that the us versus them paradigm made it easier to kill the enemy by dehumanizing them, the class system was kind of an internal us versus them that made it easier for leaders to deploy their troops. Warfare, of course, is a game of cold strategy at the general level, and in order to play it effectively, a commander needed to detach his emotions. It's a lot harder to send your own sons and nephews to war knowing they will likely get hurt, but it's much easier to deploy a different class who you see as more of as, as a pawn than as real people. Now, this may seem dark, but this principle has been maintained by all armies up until the modern day. Even the modern military has a clear separation between the officer class and the enlisted men. In the U.S. military, for instance, what separates officers from non-officers is a college degree, which seems really archaic. Many people within the military and without the military do criticize this. Like, what does a, a four-year liberal arts degree do to qualify someone to lead other men in battle? It doesn't. But these structures come from old nobility and peasant classes. Our structures in the U.S. military come from that of the United Kingdom. And some hundred years ago, uh, what defined someone as an officer was that you're of noble birth. Uh, if you're noble birth, you immediately got put into some junior leadership position. If you're not of noble birth, you are one of the rank and file. 
In America, the founding fathers were all aristocrats except for Ben Franklin. And when they were creating the U.S. military, a college degree was the easiest way to screen for elites. And it wasn't just for the sake of elitism, although I'm sure that occurred. It was also, at the time at least, a good tell of competence versus someone who's never done anything more than labor. And while the modern-day U.S. social classes don't really reflect this anymore, these structures have been preserved because of their utility in fighting. Nowadays, one does not become an officer by being born to an aristocracy, but the class system is still maintained for the same reasons. In the U.S. Armed Forces, for example, officers have their own quarters and privileges. They were still referred to as sir, even by uh, high-ranking enlisted men. And fraternization between officers enlisted is strictly forbidden, especially within the same chain of command. This psychological division is enforced because it makes it easier for commanders to make emotionless decisions in battle when they don't have that kind of social familiarity. And without the social and military class systems, conquest would also be impossible. Remember, testosterone drives men towards conquest to maximize their resources. But in the early Stone Age, conquest was kept in check by one, inefficiencies, and two, their oxytocin reward system. Since humans were not technologically advanced in the Paleolithic era, the male instinct for conquest was basically canceled out by the environment. There was no opportunity for a surplus. All of a man's testosterone-driven instincts were basically nullified by the fact that the expenditures of the environment were so high. So essentially, the bank balance was kept at zero. And also, the oxytocin reward system would balance out the testosterone instincts by wanting to making a man also want to reduce risk to his loved ones, especially, say, he was the chief of a, a tribe at war. But in the Bronze Age, the impulses of kings and generals were freed from these constraints. Centralized state economies allowed for great advancements in technological efficiency, which created a huge surplus of wealth and fighting power that could fuel conquest basically as long as you kept winning. And secondly, since most of the men you were sending to die were strangers of a, of a different class, this reduced any of the oxytocin-based attachment that would prevent you from wanting, let's say, your son to be put on the front lines or made into cadden fodder. So, unrestrained by natural checks and balance, the testosterone-driven instincts of the heads of states could then evolve into a desire that many powerful men would have throughout history, the desire to conquer the world. Once the Egyptians, the Theban dynasty, took the country back from the Hyksos, they realized they had neglected war. Essentially, their herbivore self developed a taste for meat. They became a militarized nation, applying their economic prowess to war fighting. They evolved the four-wheel chariots that they got from the Hyksos into lighter two-wheel chariots that could easily be carried over uneven terrain during marches. Their new improved army included an entire chariot corps with a special chariot repair and supply unit, as well as units specifically there to feed and care for horses. They also shifted to a 1 in 10 conscription instead of the 1 in 100 that was more common at the time. They essentially 10x'd their army, using 10% of the male population for fighting. So we can imagine taking this huge peaceful herbivore and adding fangs and horns and armored shell. And of course... An animal equipped in such a way needs something to bite, right? So now with a country armed to the teeth, what was there to do other than fight? The once pacifistic kingdom of Egypt became the militarized Egyptian empire. Initially, after taking the country back from the Hyksos, they conquered the surrounding states just to provide a buffer against invaders. 
But then they kept on conquering because, of course, they wanted to further protect those borders. And we see this as a recurring theme where defensive measures ultimately become offensive. If you have some program designed to protect your center by pushing the perimeter further and further out, there will always be a reason to keep pushing until there's some reason to stop. In this way, imperialism is a natural continuation of survival programming given to men by testosterone, part of the entropic nature of growth. Either you keep growing or you get conquered. This creates a cycle of conquering land, gaining wealth, growing your military, then having to conquer more and more to keep that military and land intact. Which led to one of the greatest Theban conquerors, perhaps the greatest Egyptian conqueror, a man named Thutmose III. King Thutmose III is now referred to by many as the Napoleon of Egypt. His name literally meant the lasting manifestation of Ra, one of their gods, and he reigned from 1479 BC to 1425 BC. He's recorded to have captured 350 cities during his rule, conquering much of the Near East all the way to the Euphrates and south in Nubia in 17 known military campaigns. And he was particularly good at city invasion. Now, at this time, siege warfare had not really been developed. That would be developed uh, by the Assyrian Empire, who we'll cover in the next episode. So conquering a city basically came down to who had more food, right? The way they would conquer a city or employ siege on a city was to starve them out, prevent any new food from getting in. So it always came down to who had more access to economic resources, who would basically starve first, the city or the invading army. And with Egypt's incredible wealth, Egypt typically won these battles. The Egyptian scribal network under Thutmose also gave us the first recorded battle in history, the Battle of Megiddo. And actually, Armageddon in the Bible comes from this battle. Armageddon is a transliteration of the Hebrew Har Megiddo, which means Mount of Megiddo, the mount just outside of the city of Megiddo. And it was the largest known battle at the time, which likely inspired the biblical battle of Armageddon. Everything we know about previous battles basically comes from oral retellings or things pieced together from some sort of stone records or records that came much later. But the Battle of Megiddo was the first time that we had people writing things down close to real time. This is the first time we actually have a play-by-play in a battle. In April 1457 BC, which is the most precise date I've shared so far, King Thutmose III marched 20,000 men from Egypt to put down a coalition of Canaanite vassal states who were rebelling. He used scouting units to determine the location of his enemy and the first recorded use of military intelligence, and was able to maneuver around the Canaanites in first army-level surprise engagements. And the battle also demonstrated the pinnacle of known combined arms tactics at the time. Thutmose opened with a chariot screen, had his chariots uh, strafe, parallel to the army's uh, shield wall line, battering the enemy center with composite bow fire. This created an opening for his spearmen to break through, and then his chariots then flanked the broken enemy, chopping them down in their route, of course, uh, triggering the chase reflex. Egyptian scribes noted their army seized exactly 340 prisoners, 2,041 mares, 191 foals, 6 stallions, 924 chariots, 200 suits of armor, 502 bows, 1,929 cattle, and 22,500 sheep, the royal armor, chariot, and tent poles of the defeated king of Megiddo. I share this not only to point out uh, the Egyptian scribes' precision, but also 
sharing what was valuable to them, right? It must have been a symbolic and important move to take the royal armor and the tent poles of the defeated king of Megiddo. Otherwise, they wouldn't write it down. After taking Megiddo, King Thutmose went on to conquer most of the known world. He gained control over all of northern Canaan, and Syrian princes were obligated to send him not only tribute, but their own sons as hostages to Thutmose. This was a common practice of essentially aligning incentives, right? Like if you had another king's son in your care, obviously it would be make it easier to trust his actions because, of course, if he disobeyed you, you'd kill his son. And even beyond the Euphrates River, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Hittite kings all gave Thutmose gifts, which were seen as some, some form of tribute. We could look at it as a civilization extortion again. And this tribute was marked on the walls of King Thutmose's tomb as signs of his incredible ability, basically as how hard he was able to flex on the other kings in the known world. The Egyptian empire continued to grow and was the largest and most advanced national entity relative to his era in history, by far. But even they could not last forever. Because the end of the Bronze Age lines up along with the fall of the Egyptian Empire and what's known as the Bronze Age Collapse. And there are various possible factors of what led to this. One was climate change, which led to drought, which led to famine. In a, a letter written to the, the pharaoh at the time, Ramses II, from a Hittite queen, he asked the Egyptian ruler for emergency food supplies, stating that she had no grains in her lands. Another letter from a Hittite king to uh, another king in the area asks for barley and states quite seriously that it's a matter of life and death. This just points to the heavy reliance on all of these civilizations of grain and when there was some sort of issue that prevented grain production, it basically ruined the entire civilization. Another factor is what's known as the invasion from the Sea Peoples. Now, it has never been confirmed exactly who the Sea Peoples were, but there were some form of um, traveling nomadic marauding band that came from the Mediterranean Ocean. There's some theories that they came from Greek Isles. There's other theories that they were basically outcasts that left other civilizations. But for some reason, they came together to conquer and basically destroy civilizations such as the Hittites and the Mycenaean Greeks. There's also a theory that they... They became this way because they somehow were the first to access iron weapons, which gave them a huge advantage in battle, which basically, I mean, the, the theory goes that they created iron weapons for the first time, realized they had an advantage, and they decided to just use it to conquer other peoples. And this is supported by reliefs showing sea peoples carrying swords in battle, which were, swords were not a common weapon, especially for a foot soldier. So the fact that many of the sea peoples are seen carrying swords, especially straight swords, shows that they may have had access to weapons, or iron weapons, rather. But regardless, they were a major factor in the downfall. There were also earthquakes, and along with this, with the invasions, with the famine, there were internal uprisings that, of course, challenged these centralized states. But really, the thing that ties them all together was essentially a systems collapse of these highly centralized nation-states, primarily Egypt, right? Because Throughout this whole area in Western Asia and Northern Africa, they had this what was essentially a globalized economy where many of the states lacked self-sufficiency in themselves. They relied on another state to provide them with grain or some other resource. And once one piece of this web began to falter due to invasion or famine, everywhere else fell apart. We can even see this in the modern day global economy where, say, the Russia-Ukraine war, 
you know, a lot of the story there is that Russia supplies wheat to other places like Africa. You know, if Russia's taken out of the game, well, Africans suffer, right? This is one of the problems with centralization that without local self-sufficiency, something that happens very far away from you can cause the entire system to collapse. Centralization is kind of like a very tall pyramid, which might look cooler. It might, it might be able to see higher sites. Obviously, a tall pyramid seems like a greater advancement than a small one, but also a taller pyramid is much more vulnerable to being knocked over. It's kind of like when the apex predator population in a certain ecosystem gets too big, it rapidly will contract. Many, many of its members will die off, or maybe it'll even go extinct due to the energy costs. When state economic and mimetic controls weaken, we tend to revert more to our natural or autonomous instincts, which are a more decentralized form of social grouping. And we'll see this throughout history of expansion and contraction, centralization and decentralization, as basically the environment changes. And while it's beyond the focus of this podcast to speak about current events, we can look at modern day as kind of a move towards decentralization. There's a contraction of states, a resistance against global interdependence. And even if you look at our monetary system, there's this great move of individuals to move towards a more decentralized format uh, because it creates more equity and it also allows uh, less vulnerability of, say, someone who's not of the ruling class to preserve his own well-being. So the Egyptian empire would never return to its previous glory after the Bronze Age collapse, but they were actually one of the few civilizations that were able to survive, especially through the invasions of the sea peoples. The pharaoh at the time, Ramses VI, chose to basically let them ravage most of the country. He, he withdrew from the coast and preserved a smaller part of his kingdom in the southern part of his kingdom. But it was a Pyrrhic victory, right? His his country was ravaged. The Egyptian empire never regained its level of wealth and prominence in the world ever again. Egypt did master centralization, but they also offer this warning with centralization, right? The bigger it is, the harder it is to maintain, the more vulnerable it is. And as we'll see in the next episode, there was a lot to be gained by decentralization. Maintaining decentralization and egalitarian ethics even through the creation of states, was something that our next civilization that we'll cover, the Greeks, did very well. In the next episode of the History of Man podcast, we cover the Greco-Persian Wars and a specific cultural turning point, a victory of certain ethics and values that would become prominent throughout the world due to certain key battles, a victory of decentralization and a certain view on human conflict that some historians call the Western way of war. Stay tuned for the next episode with your shield or on it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this episode, I'd appreciate a lot if you leave a review on Apple or Spotify or share it with one person you think would enjoy it too. All right, thanks. See you in the next one. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so at historyofman.substack.com. A paid subscription gives you access to ad-free versions of our episodes. And if you want a practical application of some of the principles of male psychology discussed here on the podcast, you can check out the Masculine Archetype Challenge at MasculineArchetypeChallenge.com. And finally, you can also support by enjoying Kudra, the adaptogen tea at DrinkKudra.com. That's drink, K-U-D-R-A.com. 
Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.